Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Good afternoon and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete Lompton, and we're joined here with Christy Doherty. Good afternoon, Christy. Good afternoon, Pete. Good to see you. Thank you. Yes, so Christy, who are you? What do you do? Give us a quick headline. Yeah, chance to blow the trumpet, I guess. Um, 43 years of old. Um, married. I'm the old with one child. She's 10 and I'm the oldest of three children. Um, grew up obviously from Derry. I've um, been in sales for the last 20 years. Um, my uh, vocation was pretty much a vacation. So I was living in Spain, Portugal, Italy, Dubai, um, and the United States. So, you know, 20 years at the front end in sales. So I've learned a lot from that. I'm also, and I guess I can say today that I'm an author. I've just published the first book. It's getting edited. I'm an entrepreneur. I have a couple of businesses that some have been successful, others haven't. I'm property investor, a few houses that I have here in Derry, which can keep me awake at night. And yeah, and you know, something that will come out in this as well. I'm a boxing coach, um, and that's one of the big passions for me, the, the, the boxing side and bringing all that together. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, that's, I'm going to look forward to this now. So <laughs> tell me this, what does uh, Fire in the Belly mean to you? Oh, I mean, Pete, I met you for the first time back in October, November, um, it was a he organised a mastermind think tank group at the it was the Beach Hill Hotel. Um, it was a brilliant day, you know. And I, you know, I, I encourage anybody that's watching this they they, they they get involved in that type of thing. But for me, that was fire in the belly. You'd asked us to do an exercise um, that morning. Um, I'd never met you. Uh, there was no agenda or brief. But very quickly after the introduction, not knowing anybody in that room. You'd asked us to all get up and stand on a, and give a TEDx of what your goals are, what your where you, where you're at now, where you're going, where you've done in the past, what's your fire in the belly, and I guess without any script, with any pre knowledge or any understanding of of everybody's you know characters in the room, to get up and stand for 14 minutes without a script and get more passionate, more driven, more focused, and actually that's what fire in the belly is for me because I got fire in the belly that day. Um, and it also opened up while I was on stage, well, I wasn't on stage. I was the first up, so I had to lead the way, if you remember. But being able to talk and then ideas coming in and then going, right, now I get it. Now I get what fire in the belly is. Now I get where I want to go. And, um, you know, that for me is fire in the belly, that drive, passion, commitment that comes naturally as well. And then it just spurs you to do everything else that you do. Brilliant. Couldn't have said it better. Love that. It's okay. fantastic. So tell me, take us right back, Christy. So where, where are you from? Where are you born? And uh... Your, your upbringing? Um, obviously born and bred in Derry and I've come full circle. I'm back here now. And um, I grew up in the shadow of Sudai Derry Golf Club um, out in Brahan, um, which is a phenomenal place to grow up, I guess. You know, you're surrounded by the... The golf club was the back garden, which meant we just hopped over the fence, threw a ball down and cracked away. And we did that, me and my brother and a couple of friends for 10 or 12 years. You know, it's the most, you know, most prestigious golf club in Derry and nobody... You know, it's doctors, lawyers, judges, you know, all sorts of high-end, high polloi were the members. Yet us little skellywags were hopping over a fence, 
throwing a ball down and waving to the esteemed members and they thought we were members. Never played for a game in my life, ever, um, until, I became a, until I moved away from, from Brahan. But so I grew up in Brahan, the woods, the football pitches, the boating house, the great outdoors. And that gave me the sort of the passion and love of all things outdoors because it was on our doorstep. You know, we kicked ball in the street, but we played in the woods. We got up to all sorts of carry on, and um, yeah, it was a fun time. I was the I was the kid in the street that all our kids mallers told them not to play with. You know, you know, I'd write my name on every wall I could. I had markers. I was I was disruptive in a way, but you know, and, and my my best friend's father just told me there he, he just lives across the street. I was his best man. I always knew he didn't like me when we were kids, but we were just talking a few weeks ago, having a beer before all this COVID stuff. And he did say that um, after all these years, I was a lovable rogue as a kid. I didn't like seeing him coming, but there was no harm in him. So I think that sort of gives you a background of the sort of character. Lovable rogue. Fair play. I love that. I love that. So, Thomas, how was, how was school for you at that age? Um, kind of not great. I didn't have a great attention span. I wasn't academically brilliant. Um, I was kind of clever enough, but yeah, I didn't like it. My mind would wander to you know, football, boxing, golf. When I started remembering back to school, I got into the odd bit of baller in the playground, as, as people do. Um, but yeah, no, in my younger years, school was good. It was a small school. I think there was about 15 people in our classroom. Um, and um, it was a small school just outside New Baldwin's um, and, and just outside the city. And yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. Um, we had a great little football team. Because we were such a small school, we didn't have an 11-a-side team like some of the bigger schools. We had a really good 5-a-side team. And for two years in a row, we were 5-a-side champions in Northern Ireland. Um, so, you know, because we couldn't, we probably only had seven players, but it was seven. Half of that team went on to play for Roma, Glen Torn, Derry City. Um, so, teams, so, so it was a really, you know, it was competitive. And, you know, the, the standards were quite high. Sounds like you were always out and about then. You were pretty much an outdoors kind of child. Yes, never. I wasn't a gamer. Didn't fall for the you know the Ataris and Amstrads and where some friends were playing that stuff. Never really bothered me. It was more you know the golf courses in the back door. You know I would have hopped up over if nobody wanted to play it. I went away myself and played. Um, I also would have wandered around the woods and messed about. I had a little dog and a little Staffordshire bull terrier who went everywhere with, with me. So um, when I was growing up, um, teens they are. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and onwards. So, yeah, always outdoors. It was because of where we grew up, I guess, Brahan, you know, it was three miles from the city, but it was surrounded and it was engulfed in woods and golf courses and then the river. So you had everything there to stay out. So there was no, and plus my mum, you know, the oldest uh, with three kids, get out and enjoy yourself. Don't be hanging around here. So there was that, you know, we were forced out as, as much as, um, as, as anything. What, uh, I'm sure your mum had, had her hands full looking after you guys then, so. Oh yeah, um, and me in particular, my brother is a sort of gentler soul, quieter. Um, he's followed me in the seals, I got him, I did, he was a jack of all trades and um, managed to get him in the seals, which and he's a very different type of sales personality to me, mm. he's probably calmer, more relaxed. And, um, and then my sister, she's a nurse, but she was obviously, you know, the daddy's girl growing up, but um, yeah, I guess I was the, the one getting them, they were... They went on to secondary or the college and grammar schools and stuff. I didn't make it down that route, so I was the sort of one that was a, the... I should have been leading by example, and I said I wasn't, I don't think. <laughs> so, were you the baby then of the family? No, no, I was the oldest. You're the oldest, right, okay. Yeah, two years between my brother and me, and then two years between my 
uh, brother, younger brother and sister, so four years in total. So yeah. yeah. Oh wow, there's a good spread between us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, just, so who yeah. do you who do you take after then? Your mother or father or somebody else? Um, hey, I've often thought that um, as I get older, I'm definitely turning morphing under my dad, which is freaking me out a little. <laughs> um, I've taken him to Old Trafford a few times, and I can see, I can see things that I'm doing, mannerisms and talk and laugh, etc. So. But, you know, my mom's the, my dad's the sort of businessman. He's had his own business, you know, for years and taught us about money and business and stuff. But my mom, mom's the sort of positive go-getter, big in the spirituality and, and, and goal set and all that sort of stuff. So, so you're taking up elements of both, I guess, you know what I mean? Um, definitely. So it, it's, it's neither is the answer, but I can see myself and my dad and morphing on, but I can see my mindset, I guess. Um, an attitude to learning through my mother, who was a lifelong learner as well. Mm. So, what what did your your mother and father do then? My dad, my mum was a civil servant for your Department of Agriculture, um, and was involved in all sorts of stuff. She was a song in the Derry Conkill Choir, sung for Bill Clinton in the White House. Um, very talented singer, choir singer. I guess it was a group. It was a group of them all went went to America for St Patrick's Day. My dad and, well, the Doherty family were quite well known in Tamnair and Eglinton area for over the years. They were back in many, my grandfather set up, it was the Doherty's potato merchants. We supplied all the supermarkets, chip shops, um, owned some land out in, in, in Tamnair, so they were merchants. My dad's the oldest of 13. Um, so when my granddad got too old, so my father took over the business. And then obviously with supermarkets and Tesco's and the, the change in buying and, and sourcing products, I guess, going multinational. And it just became smaller and smaller. And he ran it down. He's 72, but he ran it down. He was 70, so we gave it up two years ago. But, you know, done very well. Um, very well respected. And, and um, yeah, so he's, he'd never worked for anybody for, for his li- all his life. It was just in business the whole time. And I guess when, he was, when I was growing up, he used to he used to have mobile shops. So he was always doing something. All our, there was a shop, a physical shop that he purchased and, and ran for a few years and then sold it back to the owner. And then when I was about 15, 16, he had you know, the vans that drive around the housing estates and beeps the horn and the locals come out and buy their bread, milk and eggs and stuff and cigarettes. So he had one of those that went very well. And um, I think that's how I got introduced to smoking at a young age, stealing cigarettes after my shift. I wasn't getting paid. I was getting paid in penny sweets and, and things. So it was, a, it was a crash course in dealing with customers, uh, 14, 15, 16. And then the rogue element side of me used to steal a packet of cigarettes for the boys and they'd head off into the Braham Woods and hover around and smoke a 10-pack, a Regal Falter, in a record five minutes and then cough our way back to the house stinking of smoke, you know. So that's the sort of stupidity that we kind of got up to as kids. I'm sure, uh, I'm sure your parents uh, kind of might have suspected what was going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. My dad started realizing then that I think Regal Falter was his top seller back then. So he kind of knew it wasn't stacking up the numbers and I didn't think it would ever catch on, but I did. So we ended up having to steal park drive. These are the ones without the filters. Nobody really bought them, so he didn't really care about them, but he was wondering where all his regal filter were going. So we started stealing park drive um, and then got up and smoking those. And when you smoke one of those, you tended to lie down for about 20 months to your head came around. Never that strong, but yeah, uh, all, all, all good times. Uh, so tell me, what, what was your first job then? Was it with, with your dad there, was it? Uh, my first job was with my dad. Uh, you know, I was weighing, weighing potatoes in the 2 kilo, 2.5 and 5 kilo bags. Um, I was driving and reversing lorries around 10 or 11 under the big yard. Um, I enjoyed that more than weighing spuds, um, spuds we call them. 
Mm. Um, and then I got into the shopkeeping side of things. But I guess the first real job where I got paid, because you don't get paid when you're your dad, you just, mm. you just do it. And um, it's learning curve. But um, I, I worked in Dunn's stores. I got a job. I, don't, I can't remember what age I was. I was still at school, you know, secondary school or dairy tech. And I got a job in Dunn's stores. And I used to have to go out to the warehouse and load up. Well, I was in the drink side and load up this big cart with, you know, six packs of two litres of Fanta and stack them as high as you can and then push them out onto the shop floor. And then yeah, you had to push really hard to get this trolley to move to get the momentum. And then when you come through the doors of the warehouse out into the shop floor, you'd have been met by a customer coming with a trolley and you had to pull the brakes and slow down. I didn't have the, the mentality for that. I was very short fused. I used to crack up as for want of a better word. And mm. um, just to get frustrated, so the manager said, "Listen, I'm going to move you into the warehouse. You're better behind the curtain as opposed to out there." Because yeah, so um, it, it was a it was a rocky start, but I thought about a year or two, and I was in the warehouse, and I really enjoyed that. And getting my beer tokens as well at the weekend was was was, was the most important thing. Do you remember what you were paid at the time? Oh, uh, enough to buy beer. <laughs> um, I can't remember what it was. To be honest, it's gone back so long, but. Um, it was five or four pound an hour or something like that, or three something an hour even. But you know, we were just a tech. It was, it was, um, it was really, you know, you might have done twenty hours a week as well. You know, a full day, a couple of Thursday, Friday late nights, and then a full day on a Saturday, and maybe a few Sunday hours. So yeah, it was, it was, um, a lot up to keep you going and buy back then as well. That was the least amount of money I was ever earning. Obviously, my first job, but I was wearing the dearest clothes. I don't know where I was getting the money. I was buying the ruffler red shirts and the diesel jeans and the Nike Air slippers, you know, everything had to be the best of the best back then. Fair play, yeah. Well, I'm sure. Well, where would you have gone out? Are you in, in Eglinton? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, local, you know, around. We used to have a, a few beers at the Braham Boathouse, um, get the Dutch Courage up and then walk in from the boathouse and in the line, cross the bridge and then get a bus from Foy Street down to the place called the venue. Um, and then you kind of gravitated out of the venue to a place called the Point Inn. So you got a bus from Central Derry down to the Point Inn, which was Quigley's Point, Muff direction. Um, yeah, so yeah, you know, but back then in those younger days, it was, you know, the venue and some of the bars around the city centre and, you know, thinking you were the top dog. Yeah, good stuff, great times as well. Fair play. So secondary school then, how was that for you? Good. Um, I... Kind of realised when I failed my eleven plus and I went down to secondary school, and all my all my best friends had um, all went to St Colm's College together. Um, I'm stuck in a class, um, didn't know anybody. The class was five times the size. Now going from a class of 10, 11 or twelve, fifteen people, whatever it was, to a class of thirty five, and you're like, whoa, this is different. Um, and I think it was secondary school. I kind of wised up a wee bit, and it's like, you know, I'm going to have to. Uh, work a little bit harder, pay a wee bit more attention. Um, but say I went to a mixed school, um, integrated Catholic, Protestant, boys and girls. Um, so it was good. You know, it came from a mixed area as well. So, you know, we, we, we the Brahan area was very um, mixed Catholic and Protestant families. And it was, it was um, but the school, going into the school, the, the Campbellmore School, it was just, a, it was good to meet people that I would never have met because I lived in Brahan and sheltered. There's people from all the sort of, Craig and area and area, the bog side, and then people from Kosh Quinn and all sorts. So it was good. It was a, it was a melting pot. And yeah, yeah, I suppose that's when the interest in girls developed as well. You know, first or second, you know, all these lovely girls in the classroom that I've never seen around the, the, the feelings of her hand. I'm like, all right, I'm going to enjoy this. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. So tell me, what uh, was your favourite subject in school? Or what yeah, geography, and that would be the hands down geography. And I guess that's why it's by no coincidence that in later life, you know, I used to look at maps of the world and just stare at capital. You know, I, can, I used to memorize all the capital cities, populations of cities, what the ecosystems and natural physical resources, all that stuff. And I still have an interest in that. Um, so yeah, geography was it. And then obviously at that age, I knew I wanted to travel the world. You know what I mean? That's why I looked at atlases. That's why I looked at maps. And I wanted to have a fascination with America. I have an American visa. I could live there now if I want. So, but it was at a young age. And that's going back, you know, it was an encyclopedia Britannia set that my father bought. Um, that had in the house, I used to just look at uh, volume 20, which is maps and countries and stuff. I was fascinated by that. So geography, and I guess that's why I knew I was going to travel the world with my job. But my love of Did you know anyone that traveled, or where did that come from? I had an uncle called Chris Muller, my mother's brother, who lived in America. Um, he's from Stravan, shipped out to San Francisco, lived and died there for 30 years. He, he sadly passed in San Francisco, working, doing what he loved. He just took a massive, he was unfortunately dead before he hit the ground. Um, um, but knowing Chris, that's how he would have wanted to go. Mm. Um, a real character and um, an uncle that I looked up to. I liked a lot as well because he was, he was, you know, when you're growing up, he's sound and he, he knew the crack as well when he came home. Plus he used to send gifts back all the time, packages from America that had books and flags and American stuff that you just didn't get in there and you were just delighted to get. So, yeah, he was the sort of, you know, Chris, I was named after him, I guess, Christopher. Um, it's also the patron saint of travelers for anybody that gives a, a toss about that. But yeah, so he traveled and I guess it was my destiny to travel as well. Mm. So you went through secondary school then? And what stage did you exit out of it? Um, I went through secondary school. Um, what I, I've done the whole, I've done the whole five years, got the GCSEs. I think I got six GCSEs and... The options were were limited. I went and I went into construction at the, at the, at the Northwest Regional College, um, a construction course. I was standing on a building site about two weeks into it with some tripod thing. I don't even know what it was, and I'm like, "What am I doing? This is this is not for me. This is not for me." Um, tried to go back. I said to the course guy, "You know, can I need to change course? This isn't for me. I don't even know why I applied for it. I just like the idea of construction, but I need to get into some." So got into the business class was full. I said, I want to get into business. I should have went down business and finance anyway. Um, they couldn't put me in, and they moved me into leisure and tourism, which was a, a mixture of, but, you know, leisure being the sporting element and tourism being the sort of geography side of it. So for me, right, okay, I'll give that a go. It was a GMVQ, I think they were called. Flew mm -hmm. through that and then got into my done. After that, and done the HND as well. I moved into business and finance and done a HND. So that was the sort of tech years. Um, Four years, yeah, three or four years, I think I spent at Northwest College. I came out of it with a distinction, HND. Um, and uh, yeah, good times again, again for the tech was meeting lots of people from all, not just there and they were coming from all over the Northwest. The, the, the social side, that's when you really start going out and enjoying beers and the students' unions and, and girls, I guess, as well, you know, all those things. So the tech for me was. Um, and I've met friends at the tech, two guys in particular, um, that I'm still very, very close with to this day. You know, Martin Dillon, um, a guy from Derry, and an our guy, John Paul Nixon. Um, we've stayed friends. I mean, it was on with Martin, did the wee hours last night and WhatsApp, and I got slagging 
we went to Germany together as part of a program that the tech were running. We loved for three weeks. It was just a laugh a minute. You know, so memories, lifelong friends were, were born from, from, from the Derry Tech. It was uh, really, really enjoyed the experience there. I think the tech for me then, you know, the, the Stott Secondary School hadn't wised up to the ways of the world. Um, it was when I was doing the tech then, there was a career teacher there, and they kind of said, you know, if you want, and when they asked, what do you want to do? And when I told them what I wanted to do, they were going, you're really going to have to knuckle down. You're really going to have to apply yourself. You're really going to have to, because it was very easy to take when you're at school, you're at school. You come in at nine in the morning, you go home at three o'clock and you have to be there. They freaking have a roll call. Um, you're either present or you're not. And you can't just come in the morning, slip off. The tech, you could. You know, there was a snooker hole at the bottom of the street. You know, I could have went down and played snooker, which was really tempting. Um, go for, you know, go for a beer, all sorts of things. So, you know, it was really... There was the flexibility of the tech, and I was one for abusing that flexibility, but was when a careers teacher said, you got to knuckle down. You have a wee bit of potential, so um, if you could knuckle down, that would be great. So what is it that you wanted to do at that time? You know, what was the reason for knuckling down? What's that, sorry? You, you're saying at the time, you, you know, you had, there's something you wanted to do. What was that, you know? I, I, uh, I, I always wanted to be in business. Um, I always wanted, in my head, at the tech, it was, I don't need to learn this stuff. See this freaking finance module, this human resources, this operations, this marketing. I'm going to work for my dad. I would take over my dad's business. Back then, it was really thriving, maybe 10 or 15 people working for him. You know, I'm just here because I have to be here. I'm too young to go into business. But in my head, I was going to do, you know, I always had that backup plan for the, the, the family business or, or set something else up. But, you know, it was only then, so that's what I wanted to do, be in business. Um, yeah. Do you remember the name of the careers teacher by chance? Uh, hey, I'll tell you this, I should. Ken something, because he was actually, the business that we have now, Station B&B, which is um, 18-bed B&B in there, particular three, four-star. Um, it just debates a 200-year-old Victorian building. Now, uh, there's a tunnel from the B&B. That runs right underneath the B&B, right underneath the Northern Road, and drops you right out at where is now the Dairy Tech. And it just to be, he has to be the, it just to be the house of the superintendent of the asylum. And the asylum was down at where Dairy Tech is now. So this, the superintendent had a little walkway from his grand residence down to the asylum. We'll go back 200 years here. But Ken, freaking hell, what is his name? He is my career, old careers teacher who's retired from the tech. He's the president of the sort of, historical society of that era. So once we renovated and spent a significant amount of money renovating the B&B, he, um, we were on the Mark Patterson show, I believe, talking about it, and he listened and heard and said, I've got to meet these people. So he came up with all these artifacts and all this stuff and they, the history of the building, the history of the, 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 the superintendent and you know the significance of it all. And then when he came through, then I could see him looking at me and going, I know you. Where do I know you from? And I was, Ken McCormack. There you yeah, go. Well that's just came to me. I knew it would. It's just um, so yeah. His name was Ken McCormack, and um, yeah, he was the careers teacher. That sort of said, "Hey, you've got about a you know knuckle down. You know what you want. You're very focused and driven, but your attendance is awful. You're running around here, and you're you know you, you you're, you're you're speaking to the teachers. You you've got ability, and you, but you could could be better. Was you know a common theme in my reports. Mm. Could do better. Could work harder." It sounds like, obviously, he had quite an impact on it. Was anyone else that really stood out for you? Oh, um, 
Um, again, I, I, there was, there, there was, I got into, I played football in those days. Um, old football coaches passed away now. Um, Oxy from Cliftonville, um, football local, one of the better teams in the city. You know, we're always up, up there, there, thereabouts, under 13, 15, 17. Um, a lot of time for Oxy when I was younger. He was the sort of guy that, you know, I was always probably one of the shortest guys on the pitch, um, you know, when I was growing up playing football. But um, but I like playing centre forward. Uh, I like scoring goal. But, you know, back then, the two big heavy defenders just start throwing you about. So I was always a tough enough and like getting stuck on. But Oxy moved me position. I remember saying, I think you'll be brilliant. You've got a good. So he changed me to a left back. I'm right footed. Don't know what he was trying to tell me, but it worked. I play, you know, I had a couple of good years playing for Brandon Harps and stuff as well. But yeah, Oxy used to was one of those coaches that pulled you aside and talked to you after the game and made you feel good, even if you had a bad game. So always just remember, you know, if you had a bad game or you got skinned by a footballer and you were big five 0 and you know you're going, ah, you know what, stuff this, I ain't coming back. But Oxy was one of the guys that sort of spoke to you walking out coming out of the change rooms and you know what, you were bouncing back the next night to training and you know. It, that was the first um, real value and experience of a, of a coach outside of the parenting, you know, the, the network at home that I ever had. And that was from all under 13, 15 and 17. I played at that sort of local dairy and district level football. Wow, fair play. So tell me then, so you threw your HND with a distinction. What was happening then? Um, I needed money. Money was everything then, I guess. Needed needed beer tokens. Um, I'd finished about May, I think it was, and um, I I was actually I'm a liar. I was supposed to go to Dublin to Portobello Business College. I did go to Dublin to Portobello Business College and lasted for two days. Enrolled, got accepted. Hated it, hated Dublin, and I noticed I just don't like Dublin even to this day. It's just not been, and I go, I go a lot with the boxing. Um, that's unfortunately where the national stadium is, but I just don't like it. I don't want to live there. Um, I like it, but I don't want to live there. I think it's probably the better way of putting it. And um, came home. Um, there was a company called Transtech, um, which was a like a, a, a an engineering company that made cylinder head gaskets for Ford and. Buick and all the big car American company set up in um, Kempsey and word was they were paying very well. Um, nobody told me at the time you were entering the pit of hell as a work environment. It was a foundry, you know, hot, sweaty, dirty, smelly, uh, the stench of the, the molten metal and stuff. So, But I didn't know that. Um, I went down, you know, and the goal was, hey, I need some summer, summer money. Um, I need some. I need to go down to Trans. I'll go into Transtech. I'll I'll do it in the summer, and then I'll go to McGee, or I'll go here, or go there, or whatever. I went to Transtech and um, night shift. Signed on first night shift, um, and um, I, I remember just going on. The guy takes you to your workstation, and they give you a little fettle, like a needle, and then the cast, the song, the, the product would have came out of the machine. And it was a sand. It was a cast, a sand cast. But it had flakes of sand over it. My job for 12 hours was just to fettle the sand off it. So, uh, and then pass it to the next guy and he would do something. Then the normal one would come out of the machine. And I couldn't get my head around this with them. Are you telling me I have to do this? For, what else do I have to do? And go, no, no, you just stand here. The machine will come out. The cast will come out. You sand it down and give it to the next boy. And we'll do that for the next 12 hours. 
but the money was good. Back, I think it was about fourteen hundred pound a month. You know, that's twenty or twenty two years ago, whatever. More than twenty three years ago. So I was going from Vincent, you know, all the time, and and, and you know, working on a supermarket and getting pocket money from folks, um, to getting fourteen hundred pound a month. So what what I did been quite impulsive straight away, which tied me into the working environment and meant I wasn't going to go back to school was I went and got a car in HP. I don't know why. I was in earning money. I had one pay slip, three pay slips, three weekly pay slips. Back then that was enough. Do you have a job? Yep. Do you have a pay slip? Yep. Okay. How much do you want? I got a Corsa SRA, a little black Corsa. And that was it. School was out. It was over. Um, and um, I'd settled into the, the, the working life because I had no commitments. I had outgoings and I had, I had you know, yeah, a wardrobe to, to, to keep up to date and then I had a car to pay for. And yeah, that's it. You can't, once you're in, you're out. You, you can't get out. You know, you're committed. And that's, that, was, that was the start of the road to, to, um, to, to work, I guess, in academia. Sorry, you were about 17, 18 at the time, were you? Yeah, I think I was 18. I think I was 18 when I left there, 18, maybe 19 at that stage. And I was in Transtech, my first real, real proper full-time job, I guess. And, um, you know, four nights on, three off, three on, four off, 12, two weeks a day, two weeks a night. Done that for about a year, 18 months. And, and it was actually something good, something bad happened, but something good. It was a good outcome. I was at the end of my, you know, I'm, I'm getting out of here. I need to, I can't do this the rest of my life for health and lungs or smoke and stuff that was coming on and then what happened was there was a an aiming gas tank right by our machine and somebody didn't the operator didn't install it on properly and then fired up the machine and the gas tank blew off and sprayed the aiming gas so we were all choking pretty bad um and you know back then you know we we're like crack. so I, I was off work for about a week two weeks and i was you know quite sick and quite you know wheezing quite a lot and out of breath quite a lot and wasn't even doing anything it was just everything so um then one of the guys that was on the on the on the line with me said hey you know what we're away to see patty mcdermott the solicitor we're going to put a claim on and did it so they all put a claim on and i thought right well it's good for them it's good for me i'm still not 100 percent." so they all put a claim on i think Transtech offered really quickly I'll just give you two grand and back then two grand was two grand the guys just took the first claim and um, I said, no, you know what, I'm going to get a second opinion. I'm going to go to the doctors. I'm going to go up to see the asthma clinic and all that sort of stuff. And I had to breathe and do things. And my lung capacity was greatly affected. So the good thing that happened then was it was advised then, you know, don't take the two and a half grand. There is some damage done to your lungs. There's absolutely medical, no doubt about it. And I was up in Belfast seeing a, a specialist. And, um, you know, I actually got a significantly, you know, double-digit uh, cash payout. And... Um, that was the good thing that came out of the transit because I was only 20, 21 or whatever. And I, I bought my first property. I bought a prop A property, which I still have. Um, so yeah, the, the, that was the silver lining that came out of a very, very hard um, baptism of fire in the workplace. Mm -hmm. So talk to us then about your first property. Well, I, here's what happened. Well, it was in Transtech. I was in a car crash. Um, it was a pretty bad one. Someone went down the back. We actually did get an insurance claim. Um, £2,200 um, is what we got. Um, so it was a tire in a boot that saved our lives. And I was back middle. I should have been the elephant going through the... It was a spare tire. took the impact. It went, you know, the, the insurance guy said, you know, the, the tire was just mangled. So that saved our lives. 
three of us, me in particular, um, got two and a half grand. I'll not lie to you, we got the two and a half grand, cashed it, and booked a, walked out of Bank Ireland and walked across to Thomas Cook, which was right across the street, booked a holiday to uh, Santa Ponza. And I think I flew to Santa Ponza with about £1,800 in cash. That's how reckless we were back then. I don't remember coming back with any, but I do remember my dad really going to town on me about how stupid and irresponsible, etc. So when the other claim came through, the, the, the double-digit one from, from Transtech, he took control. You're not getting ahead. There's some money to go and enjoy yourself, but you're going to invest that you're at that age. Because I still haven't got the settle down, invest mindset. But I ended up buying a four-bedroom semi-detached. Me and my father went and looked at it. It was going for 40000 in in Kofenin and Derry, you know, red brick, Georgian-style, white windows, white door. Looked apart, front and back garden, uh, nice leafy suburbial area, paid it by it. Um, and we did, we went ahead and got the deal done. I owned my first house and um, very quickly then learned the, the highs and lows of being a landlord and dealing with uh, various types of tenants. Um, but I still have the house. Um, I'd raised money and had various businesses and stuff. So when I bought it for 43, I think within about two or three years, it was something I remember getting a value, you know, it was seven there or something. I was like, wow, this is easy. Took more money out, bought in our house, mm-hmm. um, invested in some businesses, a business, and that ran for a few years. So I think it had financed it up to about 100 grand at one stage, but it was worth 160. At, at the peak, 2007, I had valued at 160,000. I should have sold an old 95 on it. Um, I should have sold it. I was invited to sell it in two hours at three properties and um, didn't. And then we all know what happened with the credit crunch and the lights went out and that house dropped down. They, I don't think it ever went negative. It just sat at its value, the 90, but it was worth 160 at one stage. Not sure yeah. what it's worth now. Probably mm. 130. So what's the, what were you, about 20 odd when you got your first house then? Yeah. I mean, I, if I could turn back a clock, I would have done things a lot different. I was... Freeing up equity to do, you know, I should have, I probably would have invested wiser, probably could have, if I had any, an expert counsel or mentor back then, I wouldn't have, um, a, or, or a partner or a mastermind, which is a big key word now, you know, I could have used that the equity when I had equity in all the houses, they just fold and grow a massive portfolio. I guess I did. I got into overseas property, which will come out and, you know, that was in our phase and, you know, we bought some property overseas. So, I, if I could turn back a clock, I would have done thing, things a lot differently to the way that it, that's that's a fact. But I didn't make any major mistakes, you know. Back then, money money was just something that was easy come by. I thought, you know, if I want to earn it, I can earn it, and if I need to earn it, and you know, these, these houses are just going up and up and up and up and up and up. I didn't know that they cap out at some stage because I just thought, hey, I've been taking our ten grand, by the end of the year, it'll it'll be back in equity, and it was a learning curve, you know. I, I wasn't a property investor by no means, but my dad got me into it to invest the money, and I, mm. I'm glad we did. But you know, the, the there was no strategy behind it. You know, sure. now everything's strategic, well thought, yeah. business planned, and goal set. So back then, there was no strategy. It was just. Yeah, I mean, you probably weren't aware, I suppose, maybe at the time of the the '92 recession. No. You know, the 1992. So then, like similar like myself, you know, I was sort of oblivious to it you're just doing school you're doing everything else so as you say when you get into property and it's it's rising at that speed and everything else and you have the keys and you're like why is everyone not doing this exactly i couldn't yeah why is everyone not doing this and um yeah 
like you say, it just seemed easy money, and there's no this. The good times will never end. This is just this is phenomenal, brilliant. Um, holidays, cars, clothes, you know, stupid things. Um, were were easy come by. So, were you back working at this time as well, or? Um, I'd actually left Transtech, um, and I got a job in Seagate as a production operator because I was a production operator in Transtech. Seagate was the um, big American, they're making hard drives for, for computers and you know, Dell and IBM and everybody. Um, they're still in business, they're still in Dairy, but I worked in the Lamavati plant. There's about, when I joined Seagate, there was about three, 400 people on it. I grew to about 1,800 people very quickly. Um, the production just ramped up and ramped up. With that, that's when I kind of grew up. I was in Seagate, you know, starting to get a wee bit older. I met my now wife. Um, settling down a wee bit more at the weekends and things weren't, weren't as hectic and crazy and I'd moved out, obviously out of my folks' house. But I seen an opportunity in Seagate. I was only in there a few months and I thought, this is, as, it's not as smelly, it's cleaner than Transtech, but it's still mine. I mean, why did I not study? Why did I not go and get a degree? Should have got a degree. All my mates are in banking or, or, or living over in England and doing, managing big Tesco's and wealth advisors and all this stuff. I'm in a, I'm in a factory after all. Um, no disrespect to anybody that is in that environment. I enjoyed it, but how did I get out of this? And that's when I started plotting the course, standing in night shifts. It was my numbing work. How did I get out of this? How did I, How can I grow? But you know, I used to look at the managers, and I still do this. And I think it's a good trait I've always had. I used to look at the people above me and go, "What does he do differently? What's he do? Wonder what his background is. Watch him. How do he operate? How do he speak to people? How do they communicate?" how they roll, I guess, and, um, you know, I'm going, right. Whereas all the people that I worked with on the line used to go, can't stand him. He's a, he's a, he's a dickhead. I can't, you know. So I, I, I looked, them, looked at them with fascination. That's where I want to be. I don't want to be with you, working beside you for the next rest of my life. Because you're doing my, you know, this is where you're meant to be. I want to be where he is over there. And um, how do I get over there? And that's when I started really getting on the, sort of starting to read a wee bit more and watching what, you know, bear in mind back then when you're in a factory, successful people are the freaking managers. That's the sort of perception of success you have. It's not, you know, now it's very different. You know, I've worked with CEOs and, and entrepreneurs, investors and stuff. So back then, my first um, understanding of how all these principles and laws and, and, and success works, the successful people were to me were the managers and see again, how can I get to be one of those guys? A job came up, um, it was to be a technician support or something uh, in the wastewater treatment plant that was being built at Seagate, part of the, the power, the plant, part of the factory, I guess. And I went for the, went for the put, put in for the job, as did half of the factory. Everybody had seen it. It was a chemical handler role. There was a pound 20 an hour rise on what we were basically on for, a minimal rise, but it was a rise and a progression off the floor, which is more important to me, the next step on the ladder. Um, there was four jobs, one per shift, obviously. So, and I got it. I got one for the shift I was on. So, that was the first goal setting. Again, you can nearly say that. You know, I seen the job. I want that job. I, I'm getting that job. Um, I ain't standing on this line. If I don't get it, I'm leaving. Um, so, apply for the job. Um, chemical handler got it. Um, and I was on there about six months. And um, then it was it was a technician support, junior technician. Then there was an R job came up. I think to cut a long story short and without going through every day or month or year of the Seagate career, I think in seven years, eight years I was in Seagate, I started as an operator. 
and I got five promotions over eight years and left there as a, the lead technician on, on the shift. And that was just driven by how do I get, how do I become better? How do I get, how do I get what he's doing? How, even when I was a technician, what's, I had my eye and my boss's job or the, the next tech, the lead technician up. And then when I was the lead technician, it was to be the shift, tech, shift lead. How do I get to the shift lead? So always looking at what the guy above you was doing and trying to follow, replicate. And, and with the mindset of, I'm, I'm coming after your job. Right? Um, uh, I was young and boys. I still have that to this day, I guess. But I was, that was the way I was programmed. And then when you reach the top, it's as far as you can go without a degree in environmental engineering. And I think that was my boss at Seagate was a day worker. He was an environmental engineering manager. You know, you know, he did a first class honors degree in chemistry. And that's what you needed in his role. You know, I didn't have that and I wasn't going to. He was saying you should be, you should be. He always encouraged me to do courses, you know, tuition reimbursement. I'll sign off any course. You've got potential. And I didn't want engineering. I'd already tried construction. It was business I wanted to run. It was sales, supervisory, management. Unbeknown to him, I put in for a couple of courses. Here's the sort of crafty devious side now. And um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I applied for a few courses, took them up. He signed them off, but I kind of covered what the course was. Can I get. I'm looking to do a course, what's it in? Uh, environmental engineering or something. Yeah, it's, it's wastewater treatment and all this sort of stuff. He'd sign it off, course, much as a course. I think you were, the maximum was a thousand pound a year you were allowed. And I was like, yeah, it's 1,200 pound and I'll pay the balance, right? Okay, and he'd sign it off. I don't hold my mortgage exams. I became a CMAP mortgage advisor working at Seagate. He didn't know. So, because I knew right, I need to get out of here now. I'm never going to be in the day. I'm never going to be an engineer. Um, I don't have that mindset. But I would like to get into sales or I would like to get into mortgages. I was in property anyway, and I wanted to grow that. And some people were saying, if you had a CMAP, you can have a desk with me, a very well-respected mortgage advisor in the city. And uh, yeah, I got mortgage qualified. I became a, uh, I did a management course while I was in my night shift in Seagate. And I also got involved in or, or, or began the path to personal development on night shift. You know, bearing in mind, I ran a small, small team of six technicians. We were in a lab above the factory floor with walkie-talkies on night shift. Unless somebody walked radio through, they say there was a problem within the plant. We kind of had a, you know, we were playing, we were like firemen. One guy was sleeping, our guy, two guys were playing cards. One guy was navigating the internet because the internet just sort of blew up at them. You know, it wasn't we were constantly working. We kind of worked when we were needed. Some nights you may have never got a second. It was just chaos. And we'd be all over the plant. Other nights, it was like the fire service. You, you know, we could have got to sleep. Um, so I used that time to study, um, get more qualifications. So when I did come out of Seagate, you know, it was a fully qualified equity release, mortgage advisor. Um, and I had a fucking certificate in management, I think it was, Institute of Management Certificate. You mentioned even there, sort of earlier on when you were plotting the course, and you talked about reading at that point. What were you reading? Do you remember? I joined some book club and got a whole load. Back then, I was really interested in, in military books, believe it or not. Um, Andy Ryan and stuff. I, I was I loved the sort of special forces type books as well. That mindset, you know, how what does it take to be that guy? How do they train? How do they how do they operate? Um, boxing books. I used to bring in books on boxing, kickboxing, and stuff, and read books. Um, I also like reading books on fitness and, 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 and nutrition, so um, which guided me. Um, those books and, and autobiographies, you know, Alex Ferguson. I remember reading that in, in Night Shift. Um, you know, and Duncan Bannatyne. There was all sorts of different autobiographies that, that interested me. Business and sports. 
autobiographies. But you know, mainly I used to read books, you know, military books and in particular special forces books. It wasn't then to there was an event happened further down once I left Seagate. I, I mean I was in see here's the thing, I'll talk I was in Seagate, I'd worked the night shift. I was on about eighteen hundred pounds a month then in my role, which was great money back then. However, there was still not enough um, the, um, month. There's still not enough money for the month. Um, so what that meant is you were skint, you know, a week before you paid it. So a friend of mine told me that, you know, I knew I wanted out. And he said, we're having a beer. And um, he said, listen, I, could I think you'd be good at sales. I think you'd be great at selling insurance. Um, I'm, I want you on my team. You don't have to leave a day job on your days off. I'll come, come out with me, I'll train you, I'll get you um, on the road, I'll get you a couple of dealings. Um, it's a very bad then, it was just, you know, you just go out and you sign the form and that you trained and watch what I do and then copy what I do, do as I say, uh, get them to sign that form. So long story short, it was a Friday night, I was off, I was due back in to see you on the Monday night. We got off Friday night, I'd arranged to go out with this guy, my first ever sales uh, manager, first ever sales calls. We drove around a place called Isla do Donegal. We'd left Derry, drove an hour in the West Ireland in winter. It was teeming with rain. It was a miserable night. And he was upbeat, positive, and just the energy and the crack and the banter was on rail. So I was enjoying that side of it. First house we came to, our strategy was simply knock on a door, not we're going to meet Pete London here and Pete Sabrata. It was, if you see a light, tell me and we'll drive. And Isla Doe was very barren, and they might see a light in the distance, and we would just head off. Not the door. Our target was builders, building contractors. We had squads of men working in Dublin. We offered accident, sickness, unemployment cover for him and his teams. You'd see the light on. You would see the van. Um, knock the door. He's not on. You could see him hiding, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the target. And this went on for a few hours, and I, I, really, I really, really just couldn't take any more. And then we got one woman brought us in, the husband came out, 20 minutes sparring over the kitchen table to try and get a sale. And, and he, he, he rejected, no, I objected, I've got it, I don't need you because you'd leave. We left. So I was like, Gary, I didn't want to call it a day. It's not, it's not happening. No, 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 no. Power of persistence, I guess. The old Wiley sales manager knew better. No, no, we're not. We have an hour, it's eight o'clock, called into a house. Again, standing with our pitch books over our heads and the, underneath the, at the back door because it was raining so hard. Guy brings us out. I had lost all motivation at this stage. I, this is getting out of here. I'll just do it. He brought me down. He's driving. I can't really get out of it. Long story short, we go in. He pitches the husband. He wanted no, 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 not interested, not interested. Guy kept at him. Then he goes, right, you know what? Let's do it. Sign me up. So... Just feeling my objections, looping back, going back to his fact finding. Well, you told me this here, and this was important. You still don't have a great, uh, you know, guy saying, right? Let's let let let's get let's get on this plan. Gary, the sales manager, gave me the sheet and said, "Fill you it in, Christy. Put it in your name. And that way, you'll get some commission. That's your first sale." I don't know, and I just sat there like a nodding dog. Filled it in, walking out. I never felt anything like it. I didn't even do anything. It was just the energy and shift and seeing a sale take place. Oh, that's amazing, brilliant. Oh, I'm buzzing. He goes, you just made yourself 500 quid. You made yourself 30% of your salary. <laughs> just, and it was only two or three, three hours we were out at this stage. So to me, it was like, wow, I just made 500 pounds. So then I was like, 
right, let's, let's go to the bar. Let's, let's get up the road. Quarter to nine. Brilliant. I'm, I'm super excited. Friday night with the wily old sales manager knows better. He said, no, 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 no. What you don't understand is the best time to get a sale is when you've just got a sale. We are two different animals. Energy's flowing. We're buzzing now. Let's go knock on our door. You know, guess what happened when we knocked on our door? We got on our sale. I just made a thousand pound again, filled in the form. So I'm a thousand pound up. So I'm driving up the road back to Gary, buzzing, couldn't wait to get home. The two of us buzzing the energy and laughing. And the guy's still a personal friend and a crack way. I was 90. I love seeing him. And um, we, uh, I said, Gary, my, so what did you think? And I said, Gary, my only issue is dealing with my objection. I don't know if I'm cut out. You know, I, I'm coming down off the high now. I don't know if I could have done what you'd done and handling those objections. I may have give up. I may have somebody said, no, I'd walk away. Um, and I don't know if I would have kept going as long as you would have. But, you know, I admire everything you do, but I don't know if it's for me. He reached under the glove box, picked out the book called Think and Grow Rich, threw it across him and said, listen, I know exactly where you're coming from. Um, tell you what, take this book. You just made yourself £1,000. You'll be paid next Friday. Enjoy your weekend. You're heading into work Monday night. Take the book we have a, you know, take a month, you know, come back to him in a month. It might take you a month to read the book. The clue is in the book as well. It's going to pop out at you at some stage. Enjoy it. Hi, if you read the book and it's not for you, then you're a thousand pound up, nothing gained, nothing lost. Is that a deal? Okay. So I went down to work on the Monday night and um, opened the book, Think and Grow Rich. And on when I came off the night shift, which was when, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday morning, I was smashing his door down like a man possessed with my goals, my definite major purpose, my affirmations, my new vision of a, a new life in sales and in, in business and said, right, well, let, let's go. That's that book. And then I, that, I got, you, you know this anyway, that book follows me. I read it, read it 15, 20 times once a year, pretty much. Um, but that was the thing that changed it. That's when my reading, you know, Stuff the military books, stuff the geography, the autobiographies. Every, you know, it's just been consumed in, in sales books and books on um, personal development since then. And Think and Grow Rich and, and, that, and two, two of the managers on that sales company who live by those principles or live by that book. It worked for them and, and they've been hugely successful. They could have been a lot more successful, but they're, they're happy, they're successful, they're loving their purpose and they're really good at what they do. So that was the thing that changed it all then. No more, I went in to see it and said, I, for the first time, could see the way out. I ain't going to be in this factory in six months' time. And I was smart enough to realize nothing, Roma isn't built in a day. I could see the way out. I could see the future. And, you know, there's an old saying, you know, the, 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 the what always comes before the how, you know. So I was kind of like, right, I've got my goals. I've got my vision. I, I know what I want to do. I know what I was born to do. Um, but let's just get back to the day job and back to the reality and just keep loving these pink and courage and it'll come and you know we within six months i was out of there i'd also set a goal let's say i was on 20 grand 22 grand a year i was actually targeted by 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 my manager you know what do you want to earn back then 40 grand was a lot of money to me when you're on 20 40 is a lot but you know 22 40 double and 40 seemed Yep, it was realistic, but it still seems so far away. I don't know how to do that. How do I, how do I get from, I'm in a factory. How do I get to 40? The, the, long, the short story is I got there within six months, shortly after six months, 
And the thing is, it just all happened. I, I didn't, you know, wasn't cognizant of all these different little things happening because I just let the universe or nature or whatever you want to call it just take its course. I just cruised on, kept a positive attitude, stuck to the goals, worked hard, stuck with the day job. Even if you're not happy and it, stick with it, stay happy, turn up, show up, and go the extra mile. But it was when I was doing that that all these things are happening in the background, you know, the, the law of attraction, the people, places, opportunities. Um, and then, you know, six, there was about eight months, if I'm honest, I got offered a job. Um, I'd moved into overseas property, and there's a story behind that as well, getting out of Seagate. But, um, and, you know, the first the guy, within meeting the guy, within a, within a couple of weeks of meeting him and selling some property for him, over in Bulgaria and Cyprus, doing it from my, from my phone on my days off. He said, I can't afford to pay you commissions the rate that you're selling property. I'm going to have to get, put you on a salary. I'm going to have to um, open an office in Derry. He was in Manchester. I'm going to have to give you a, a different commission rate. And I'm going to give you shares in the company. I'm like, I can't afford it. You, you, you're freaking killing it. And um, he said, so the salary I want to offer you, it's going to, I'm just going to come out. Would you take £40,000? as a base salary, and I'll give you £500 a month for your car, and then here's the commission, and here's a, so, do-do-do-do-do-do, you know, it's going through my head, you know, so that was the goal. When you set that goal, you have no idea how you're going to get 40 grand. No idea, but it's living and working the principles of the thinking and philosophy, sticking with a day job, and, you know, it, it happens. And then you, when you get to 40, you go, hmm, wonder could I get this to 80? Then the transpire you know 80 as a base you know when we were on for it i think it was you know we were earning more with commissions and things like that as well but you know it just shows you that's when i started getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the study of the, the mind i guess and i don't say that they they sound too sort of metaphysical or deep on it no it just i was just infatuated by it you know with this if more people here's my take on it if more people knew this how to visualize and set goals and be positive and, and driven and focused and persistent. More people knew this. That Seagate factory would be freaking empty. Nobody would be working in there. They'd be working doing what they love to do. They'd be work some uh, some people as well, what I love really important. It's, might, it's not all about the money. It's doing what you love to do. So that's what I like to do. That's my job. When I was in Seagate, my red thing Gorich, the goal was forty grand was a financial target. But that because they ask you to set a target. My boss said, "Can you set? What would you like to earn?" And forty to me was wow. But it was what would you like to? I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to sell, sell. I had just happened to be selling property and mortgages, and I was in Cyprus, Spain, Portugal, Bulgaria, all over the world. Um, so, like I said at the start, my vacation, my vocation was a was a freaking vacation, and everything was expensive. So, not only did was I making the money I wanted, but I was actually living on purpose that's a very strong statement there living on purpose well, um, yeah yeah it is well it, it's it is exactly what you're doing you're living you're in the job you want to do you're helping people achieve their dreams goals or aspirations and um you're freaking happy and getting significantly well paid for it as well so that's living on purpose you know that's firing a belly that's jumping out of bed in the morning going i can't wait for today can't wait mm. for today. Can't wait to either help somebody, solve somebody's problem, and um, yeah, do it with a smile. That's that's back to the fire in the belly. So that that first sale, I mean, that that sort of that call out with the insurance. I mean, yeah. you must have been what 25, 26, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around then, yeah, I was, I was a few years in Seagate anyway, you know, and working through 
working through the different promotions and different goals. So I had a, probably a goal set and background, unconscious to me, you know, the, the unconscious, confident, conscious, confident stuff. It was sort of, I want to be up there, but I didn't know nothing about setting goals and visualizing. Visualizing definitely knew nothing about writing a goal, sharing a goal. So, um, yeah, I would have been in the, in the you know, but I, I'd, I'd always strove to get more promotions. I need to get up there. I need to get, I want his job. Um, and then, so, yeah, my, my 20s, late, my to late 20s, you know, I think I was seven years in Seagate, maybe, so it could have been about five or, it was definitely, it, it took about an eight-month chart, you know, course, to get out. Once I'd really set and think and go rich, had an air that Monday night and night shift, they actually, you know, dreams don't happen, your goals don't happen overnight. You know, you, you can't expect them to. Um, so, you know, be patient, like I say, the, the, the what always comes before the how, but, you know, as long as you know what that what, and then the how will manifest over, so it took eight months. That to happen. Wow. So you were insurance, you were into the property at this point as well. You were really sort of firing on all cylinders. It just sounds like you found your purpose. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think the common denominator was just selling, meeting people. You know, I got good at selling insurance. I went out to my days off and um, cruised around. The problem with insurance, and if anybody's, and you may know from, is clawbacks. It's all good getting the sale and then next thing somebody cancels. Or an our savvy insurance guy goes around and speaks to your prospect or your customer and he's got a new plan or a new policy. The other thing with insurance companies, um, they don't like to pay out, as we know. So my customers, and this was a pain for me, people who give me the time and welcome me into the house, people who needed this cover, who were self-employed, that needed a income while they were injured, um, genuine nice people that I, that I put my face in front of. When injury or adversity came, when the insurance company being insurance companies, we're not paying out because of this, or we need to review the case because of this, or we need them to go and see this specialist in Dublin when this guy's lying in Donegal with a broken back. Dublin isn't really a, an option until we pay out. And, you know, and these guys may have two or three months income to, to, to keep them, and then they're in, they're, in, they're in the shit. And that's for want of a better word. So once a couple of things like that started happening, I'm, I'm like, you know what, I need to get out of this insurance guy. The company, don't, People did get paid, but they were making it hard. I was getting from happy phone calls and people shaking my hand saying, thanks for getting this sorted. The people shouting down the phone and, you know, you're not welcome in, in, in this part of Donegal again if you're ever seen down here. And it wasn't me. I sold it. But, so that was a sort of, you know, insurance then, the love affair with insurance and that type of sale moved out. I flew to Bulgaria, me and my good friend, James. We were, I was, I was, I was fully mortgage qualified. I had a Jack Kay, who is a used to play for Derry City, very well known in the city, was a very well known mortgage advisor, and he wanted me to come on board. So I knew where I was going. I was going to do mortgages with Jack. Um, and as I flew, we, I me and a, a friend decided we'd buy in Bulgaria back at the start of all this. So we flew to Bulgaria on a plane with a company. We met in London Gatwick at a meeting point. Flew out to Bulgaria um, on the plane was like not something I've never seen before. Air Bulgaria, Bulgaria Air. The plane still had ashtrays and shit. You know, it was really old, and but it was just a selling fest. Everybody was on that plane. It was February, and we were going to the sun, the sun, the sun resorts, which are dead, really covered nice. So the only people reason people were flying to Burgas was to buy property or to be sold property on inspection trips. And it was just, I'd never seen anything like it, the entire plane. It was just people doing deals, handing out cards, brochures, plans. And I couldn't believe it. One of my best mates that I grew up with was on the plane. Um, 
who'd moved to Manchester with university, done his engineering degree, done very well in software. And now then all of a sudden, he's now my business partner at the B&B. He's now my business partner with our CLC. We've worked at Monty Airs for, but long story short, he was like, what the hell are you doing on the plane? What are you doing on the plane? He was working for, he was setting up a international property development company. He was there with his boss, the CEO, the guy with the money. And he, um, he said, whatever you do, do not buy off any of these guys on this plane. I want you to see our products. I want you to see what we're doing. We're doing this stuff out here in the coast is crap. It's the ski resorts where it's at. We've got a quality product, guaranteed rental income. Don't buy. And then we ended up meeting them in the last night in Bulgaria. We phoned them, where are you guys? They came and met us in the hotel. And we shook on a deal. And then that's, that's where I started going back home and started selling uh, international property from my phone, from the kitchen. Me and my partner, my friend, good friend, still to this day, by James McConnell. And we'd sold about a million pounds worth of maybe one point, nearly two million pounds worth of property in about a two, three month period from, from, from our kitchens. Just phoning people and saying, hey, need to come down and see. We've got just to come back from Bulgaria. We've got a phenomenal investment opportunity. It's guaranteed rental income. And that's in the about tomorrow night. Literally cold calling and going down with a brochure and signing people up. And that's when the guy said, I can't afford to pay you guys anymore. You're going to have to come on the books. And yeah. That was the start of the, the journey and they oversee. We had an office in Derry. We flew in we had a big show in Derry. We flew in the Bulgarian property developer and our Learjet, the Eglinton Airport. Derry had never seen anything like this before. We had, it was just the good times, good times rolling. I was given an Audi A4, yeah, A4 convertible as my company car, you know, all from just setting goals and, and, and reading things, go rich and believing it and just. Let nature take its course. This must have been what two thousand three, two thousand four. I uh, well, yeah, yeah, around that. Yeah, two thousand four, five. You know, we have a two. Well, yeah, because I had a couple of really good years selling Bulgarian, separate Spanish and Portuguese property. Then we, I the they overinvested and stuff. And long story short, they shut down on the night of our Christmas day. I was the, given a phone call as I was locking the unit in Derry and Shipkey Street there in the city centre to go for a few pints before the Christmas night out. I got the call from the boss and said whatever you do, you have a great night, have a great Christmas, use the company card, max the crap out of it because I'm winding things up. Um, I'm, I, there's no, you won't be opening in the new year and but enjoy tonight and so that was about, about 21st of December, Friday the 21st of December couldn't tell the rest of the team on a Christmas night out. That would have sort of upset the tone. But yeah, by the, that was 21st of December. By 2nd of January, I was on a plane to Italy to work. I got headhunted the next day, a Saturday morning. As I have no idea how this happened, but I got a phone call from a guy called Harry Fitzsimmons, who owned VFI, overseas property. They made the news and all. There was a big, big, Mr. Fitzsimmons was my first real mentor. He was also um, just a phenomenal operator. He phoned me and said, listen, I knew the company was in a, the company I was working for was in trouble, but he had put my CV out there. I was a qualified mortgage advisor and I was running an overseas property company. So you have a mixture. Of, you can come with investment pitch, but you're also in sales. Um, he said, I've seen your CV. Um, I want to talk to you. I am the biggest developer. I've got hectares of land multiple projects and sold this, this, and this, and we've got a partnership. I want you to join my team down there. And the rest is history. On January the 2nd, I met Harry at um, Luton Airport, I think it was, or Stansted. 
and flew to Italy and spent a year um, loving it up, selling. When one door closed and our just came bursting open, um, apartment, salary, um, and he said, Listen, I don't want you selling property. I want you being, um, I want you as a mortgage advisor, we set up a mortgage company. So let's say Pete Lanton and his wife's coming down. Um, Seamus is going to take him around and show him all the properties that we have off plan. He's going to pitch the crap out of him, get him sold. If he can't get him sold on on the emotion, on the project, on the on the on the on the physical aspects, and then we're going to bring him into you, and you're going to do two jobs. You're going to sell him on the investment, the return, and you're going to get them signed up a mortgage through Barclays and overseas mortgage, which the company got a big kickback. So you know it was beautiful. There was fifty or sixty deals coming into me every month. Um, prospects that were buying. Not everybody went with a mortgage, but it just shows you the scale at how I was at. They were doing 50 properties a month at the peak. Um, you know, phenomenal amount of money, multi, multi-millionaire. Um, but, you know, just that was that was a crash course. The other thing, that's where I learned the difference type of sales as well. I went down to Italy when I arrived in Italy. Bearing in mind, it just, you know, one one company just wrapped it up. Um, and wave goodbye to about 30 or 40 grand in commission that I never seen because the company so just the way it was and that left a butter pole. I arrived down in Italy and you know the car park was, of the offices were full of Maseratis uh, you know, pumped out Range Rovers all with Spanish plates all the guys had left Marbella um, which was a property hotspot Magantini Realty and moved to Italy because it was a new hotspot Harry had recruited the best of the best of all these overseas took all the guys that had been selling timeshare in Spain. These guys were, you know, and then you walked into the the sales office in Italy. It was just entering boiler room. It was just a hive of energy activity. Everybody stood. No, it was Wolf of Wall Street stuff. You know, guys were making 30, 40 grand a month selling property. They were wearing the best suits, sharp as a tack, good looking guys, sunglasses. You know, they just, you're like, whoa, I'm in a different world here. You're coming from our wee office in Derry, the sales office, two guys just banging phones and enjoying each other's banter. Now I'm in an international sales office where you're the best of the best. These guys are, you could tell by the talk, the pitch, the way they spoke, the way they, their matter, rapport, their tonality, and their closing skills. They were just part sharp, part genius, you know. Um, and you weren't allowed to sit down unless you got a sale. You only got your bum on a seat. Um, you stood until you got a sale. Some people stood all day because they were their energy and their 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 ability to sell and articulate was much better standing. But hey, that was that was you know, crazy times. You know, a lot of money being made by guys, and, and you know, I was doing quite well as well. Um, not as much as the sales guys, and but the out and out property sales guys. But we we great times eating out there every night in bars and restaurants, and you know, going on to work. You know, still sharp as a tack. The energy was so much, even if you'd sat drinking at 6 a.m., you were in the office at 9 o'clock, sharp as a tack. The energy in the place just brought you around. It was just, you know, crazy. It was boiler room. Um, and it, it was, um, but again, that came crashing down uh, as well. But yeah, I'd spent a year there. I came home to get married and, and never went back. Probably the best way I put it. That's, uh, I pretty much wasn't allowed to go back. Um, so yeah, but. I still stay in touch with Harry. He's in Belfast now. It ended a wee bit sour, you know. There was all sorts, you know. You, we could nearly write a book on some of the, you know, the, the mafia was involved, international uh, money laundering, all sorts of things pointed at Harry and his business, which he was cleared of. I, I may add, 
But, you know, the mafia that exists in Italy was interesting. They used to come into the office. Sharpest guys, really nice looking and shook your hand. We were in Calabria, southern Italy. So we were looking across at Sicily. But the Calabrian mafia were the biggest mafia, uh, the most active mafia in Italy. And are still are the Nindrangata. Um, international reach from drugs, extortion, you know, everything, human trafficking. So they had overtaken the Sicilians. And with them also came a breed of violence that the Sicilians had kind of moved away from. The Sicilians were more business-like, political. These guys were farmers. It was the poorest. If you split a Calabria off from Italy, it's the poorest country in Europe. Poorer than Albania. So that's fact. Um, so the Calabrians came with, you know, they were poor, hill farmers, sheep farmers. Life is cheap. All of a sudden they formed this big gang and exploded. Um, and that's why Southern Italy is so underdeveloped. You couldn't, the, the amount of money that's been extorted from developers and builders and companies, they can't build it. They just couldn't. They built a motorway and it took 30 years to build because every five or six miles there was a different mafia family taking mad and mad money. But yeah, they used to come in with, they knew we were doing so well and selling so much, so they just come in. Very business-like, plot of land, six villas, we need you to sell it. So Harry and Antonio just did with the businessman did, and yep, okay, we'll, give me the, we'll build a brochure and we'll sell it and they got paid their commission. So they did exist, you did see them. They gave Harry a Porsche Cayenne as a gift one time, right? And um, I was Harry's go-to guy for all things finance, I think. Harry phoned me one day and said, Christy, um, and it did come from the Calabria Mafia, that is fact. Um, and he, we, Harry phoned me and said, I'm in the Holden Hotel, Palermo, in Sicily. I'm meeting some finance guys and we're talking about, new, they're going to find, find, fund some big projects. I've got a 600 uh, villa or apartment complex with a golf course and big plans. He's always, always had big plans. I need you to come to, I need you to come down and meet these people. You and Liam. My business partner and I, Liam, he's get him to do a couple of reports up and you come down and give it the pitch. And I want you, want the two Irish guys down, don't tell any of the English guys in the office. I want my own down here, see you soon. So we did drive to Palermo, which is like a six hour drive, but with no car. So I, um, I said, and I said, what will I drive her? I said, take the, take the Porsche, take the Porsche KN Turbo, right? Okay. So I took the Porsche KN, just went and lifted the keys out of the, behind the manager's desk. Where are they? They're in. Richard wasn't there. I said, right, okay, I'll take the keys. I was halfway to the border, halfway to the ferry at Messina. They head over to Sicily. When I got a call from um, the uh, manager in the office, furiously saying, who told you to take the keys of Porsche? What the hell's going on here? And um, I said, hi, right, told me I'm going to meet them in Palermo, right? And he says, what are you insane? He said, that van, the Gerdred Porsche, the number plates in that Porsche are linked to a mafia boss who's based in Calabria, who are at war with the Sicilian Mafia. And we've got two Irish guys in their Jeep heading now into the enemy, heart of the enemy's territory, in their in an in a, in a, in a ex-Mafia boss's um, Jeep. Are you crazy? And we were like, you know what? Fuck it. This will be, this will be fun. They're not going to shit two Irish guys. So we drove the whole way to Palermo in, the, uh, in a present from a Calabrian uh, rival mob boss's Coach Cayenne to meet Harry and live to tell the tale. Holy smokes. That's um, interesting times then. Yeah, oh, there's, 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 there was some, some cracking funny experiences that we got over the years. So you must have been, well, it was coming into 2007 time then, was it? Yeah, it would have been because the lights went out in 2008. Mm. Um, the lights literally, 
you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 mortgages a month. And that was me and 30, 40, 50. It grew up the first month, you know, maybe two or three deals a week. And then it kind of, you know, more and more people in the market and they ramped up the market. And all of a sudden people were coming down from Scandinavia, Russia, massive amount of Russians, um, England, Ireland. They had an office in Dublin, an office in London and stuff and they had agents. So all of a sudden you had 50 deals, 50 mortgages to do a month, um, 50 people buying property. And when, I think it was when Leah, it might have been September 2008, was, you know, the credit crunch happened slightly before, but people still bought it. And I think the, 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 the kicker was the Lehman Brothers crash, September 28, uh, 2008. It was just lights out. We were shut, uh, that office was shut a month later. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so 2008, to answer your question, yeah. So you were saying, so it was, it was around that time then you got married and moved, moved home? Was yes, 2008. Yeah, um, married. I got married and came back from my honeymoon with no job. So I was a bit weird. You know, we were in, I was in Dubai and then duty fly to the Maldives when I got word that the office in Italy was closing. And it's, you know, it's, it's, don't worry, you're not coming. Well, my wife had already told me, you know, Italy, forget about Italy. So I knew I was going to be looking for an hour job. I had put some feelers out, but the plan was to go back to Italy until I got something. You know, I knew that in my head. The wife just didn't know it. But yeah. The guys that I work closely with phone me and said, hey, it's over. We're just wrapping up. What do you want us to do anything with your stuff? Was pretty much what they said. Your laptop's down here and your stuff, your Blackberry. You remember Blackberries? I had a little Blackberry for work. We can post a D. You've got some shirts and suits in the office. And it was just like, yeah, dump it. It's no odds. It's no use to me. It's, it's over. You know, and it was, it was a wee bit depressed after I went after that. You know, just come back from the height of the, the week before you get married, the height of your... Marriage day, I'm, I'm in Dubai. I remember my first night in Dubai, I'd spent £300 on a bottle of wine. I'm on my honeymoon. Um, I also got the currency conversion wrong, so it wasn't an intentional thing. But, you know, it was just good times and, you know, it just felt great. I think it was the night before we left Dubai to go to the Maldives that that news came through. And it kind of was the end of an era. The property market's dead. The mortgage market's dead. That's what I've been doing. Well, I, you know, right, I'll enjoy my honeymoon, but in the back of your head with your land, you know, trying to sell me, you're, you're going, what the hell am I going to do? I'm starting, I'm starting again. And it's funny, you know, there's millions of people um, are probably going through that as we speak now with the, the COVID stuff. So, you know, I have lived through, which for me, which was a, which was a major um, life-changing, game-changing economy, world-changing event, the credit crunch. Um, but through teachings of, of been self-taught in personal development goals and uh, absorbance, not just thinking go rich in for the Brian Tracy's, the John Asraf's, the Jack Canfield's, the Lisa uh, Nichols, etc. And, and the secret the movie was a big, big player. You know, okay, that's not let's dust ourselves down here. That's not that's not cry. That's not whinging. That's not there's where there's adversity, there's opportunity. And um, now I took a few months off, had some money and savings, and then all all of a sudden. It was nearly a year later, to be honest, I pittered about and finished off some mortgage stuff, but, you know, it was half-hearted working and it was, you know, still looking out. And then, you know, June, I think it was, from, from back after my honeymoon, mid-October, it was around June 2009 that um, the opportunity then with a positive mindset, I guess, um, presented itself, and that was with the software company, Monsiers. Wow. Had you accumulated much of your own property at that point, or, or I had, I had, I pulled out of one in Italy because there's no longer. I had one on 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 a cracker in Italy, 
And I had to pull out because I had two in Bulgaria in ski resort in Bansko and three, four in Derry, well, one my home. Um, pulled out of the one literally because I was the guy doing the mortgages and then because of the credit crunch, the loan to value ratio had dropped down and then the deposit and just the mortgage is just where you could have got an 80% mortgage, you know, looking at, you know, 60% down, not 20% down. And also they were pulling the product for non-residents. It was like, well, this is too risky. So the Italy one lost a few pounds in deposit. So, but I could have accumulated a lot more, you know, if I had been more strategic in my sort of property investment. But yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't was the honest answer. So you're back, you're back home then, you know, so the software company talked to us about that. Yeah, well, I got Liam um, brought us a call out of the blue from a guy that he used to work for uh, in America um, who had a software company when Liam was his top sales guy. Um, they sold the company to a, a big giant and it was a startup and Marcus, the CEO, um, made a lot of money, wound up the company. He'd been watching Liam for a while, you know, the new Liam was an overseas property, probably put two and two together and said, he's probably not doing anything anymore. He can't be, like a market's dead, global credit. So he had come up with this concept um, of like a virtual concierge, a touchscreen for the hotel lobby. It was the start of the iPad generation anyway. And he said, you know, don't like waiting queues and big hotel lobbies, I'd rather go up and interact with, the con I don't like tipping concierges, you know, you ask them, where's the best restaurant around here? And they give you a half bag, you know, McDonald's could be the point you just, you know, somewhere it's, they're, 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 they're giving backhanders anyway. So the best restaurant, the concierge might be the best restaurants where he's getting paid. Plus I had to give him $10, $15 for that privilege as a tip. So he came up with this idea. What if we could use digital technology that's available today? You know, a giant iPad, 42 inch touchscreen in the lobby, which, it's powered by content management system and hotels can update all their promotions, their offers. Local restaurants could advertise on it and give them directions. And so that, that a software product was born, but he needed a sales team. Um, so he phoned Liam and said, you're obviously not doing anything. Um, I'm putting the, the pieces together now. And by September, I would like, you know, putting the team together. I want you to be available to come to Oklahoma City. And we're going to kick off this startup. We've got some, you know, got funding, got a lot of money to set it up. And um, I want you to run Europe. I want you to build a team but, and talk us through, you know, how you see. I want to show you the product. It's 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 in beta at the moment, but in September we'll have a full product to show you and, and get your get your feedback. And long story short, we Liam said, right, well, if you want a sales team, then I know somebody that you're going to have to. Um, you want me to build a sales team? Then I'm bringing somebody with me because I know who my go-to man is for sales. That happened to be me, as luck would have it. So um, uh, September, October 2009, we, we flew to Oklahoma City and we came up with a, we didn't even, the company didn't have a name. The company didn't have a customer. Um, the company had a small team of about eight, very intelligent from software people, their marketing guy, their creative guy, and a couple of Irish sales guys. and. It was born. Um, I moved through. We were self-employed originally. We came up with a business model and how much money we'd need on the back of a napkin and IHOP. And Marcus said, how much do you think you need to get this going? I think we said 50 to 100, 100 grand and we should be we should be good. We'll be generating revenue. I think he pulled, cracked the joke when it was about 6 million in the hole. Um, Christy, you told me 50 grand would do it. We're now 6 million. We still haven't cracked the, the global code. 
fortunately, I, we, we moved through. Uh, we helped set the company up with some phenomenal people. We developed a product. And we used to call in it hotels, just, you know, in, at Dublin and Ireland was our first customer. Um, Mom and pop hotels through sales, craft, balls, and, and just vision. We, we started sparring with, with the Houghton corporates and started just aiming bigger. For want of a better word, thinking bigger, aiming bigger, lofty goals. How can we take the company from a mom and pop hotel technology company to a global supplier or you know, vendor of choice, partner, not even a vendor, a partner of global hotel chains? How can we go on? We spent hours, days, weeks, months recrafting value propositions, role plays, training, back and forth. Um, and just being, you know, I was always known as hungry as hell, you know, knocking doors, making phone calls. Somebody said, and I learned that from my sales manager, I guess, in my first sales encounter. But we just never gave up, kept going, kept going. And we got from, from back of a napkin to millions and millions of dollars of revenue per year. Um, contracts with Jamira and Dubai, the Burj, the contracts with Travelodge, IHG, which own all the Hall Ends, Wyndham Hotels, sold that one personally. 7,000 hotels, an API integration, and the seven, their app that somebody else built. We, we traveled the world, you know, sales teams in multiple countries. Apple became our biggest partner. Um, we push Apple TV and Apple devices to improve communications across staff and hotels, housekeeping teams, maintenance teams. Optimized and improved efficiencies across the core hotel brands, the Ibis brands, the Novotel brands. We got our first corporate deal with Novotel, 400 hotels. I can assure you we, we went a right rip after that, me and Liam. Again, just by, you know, sales, you know, no real strategy with the core, just constantly staying in front and center of somebody's mind, the vice president of gas technology. He was never interested in our product, but it just shows you one thing you have to be in sales is persistent and persistent. Somebody might not be interested today. Our first contact with a guy to the, um, to be actually signed a global contract for 400 hotels across 60 countries, you know, could have been a year. All of a sudden, his priority shifted. All of a sudden, his guest needs across the, you know, he worked in the corporate office, but had the, they franchised like 400 odd hotels. Novotel being the brand. Once they defined their new strategy, our technology, because we were constantly sending them stuff, white papers, you know, send them hello emails, craft and stuff, you know, just like, you know, we're still here, we've done this, we've improved that, read this case study. When he needed that product or when that product became of importance, guess who gets the phone call? And that's how it happened. And um, took that product, you know, from startup to a phenomenal concept, rolled it out across 60 countries. They're still going very strong. I still consult and help. Um, hoping to get back over and do some training. The CEO wants me to come down. The new team's the new company. I left after 11, 10 and a half years. I left in September by mutual consent. Um, I, I was vice president of global sales. I started as a sales man, <laughs> sales executive. And again, having that mindset from, from which I picked up in Seagate as an operator, how did I get to here? How did I get there? I was turned down in two or three different promotion attempts. Somebody else got the job. Um, you know, it's how you respond to those sort of events that will determine your outcomes in the future. Um, I got a job, I was turned on when I felt I should have got the job, but instead I beat myself up and, you know, been, been bitchy about it. You know, I worked with a new sales director, helped them, asked them for ideas and tips and wanted to learn off him. All of a sudden, a year later, guess who overtakes him? When the vice president job came, he thought that he was getting it because he was 
already the sales director, um, and um, very shortly he was reporting to me as global vice president of sales, and he was the sales director for the UK. So the the point of that, I guess, is you know no matter where you start on a company, um, or no matter what you know, it's down to you what where you where it goes and where it, where, it, where it takes you. It's down to you to set your goals, have your vision. Down to you to work hard, practice persistence, take action. Um, Go the extra mile. Um, you're, we treated that job, that's Montiers, as if it was our company, even though we were just employees. That's we were frugal with expenses in the UK. We didn't report on every day to the CEO when we were building it here, but we managed expenses tightly. We doubled up in hotel rooms just to save money. We treated it like our own business, and that was it was appreciated and reciprocated when when you know the CEO was looking at growing the team and growing the, the people. So. And it then gives you a crash course. We weren't running our own business, but we were treated as of our own business. But now we're running our own business because it's like we've had 10 years' experience running a business, which just happened to be a multinational global hospitality software company that's doing very well. Cool. Wow, that's phenomenal. Um, well, anyway, that's, um, it's a phenomenal journey. And you've obviously, I mean, all that's really come, I suppose, from Think and Grow Rich. And, and what other training was really stood out for you in all that? What was that, sorry? What was the What other training and, and you know, development stood out, you know, to, to give you all that knowledge and experience? I mean, when, you, when I read Think and Grow Rich, I went on to um, look at all, you know, the Think and Grow Rich was the first thing that stood out was what's inside here, you know, and the power they, they create and develop and build. And you know the, the powers within that. You know, I always looked at the outside events and tried to they they guided where I was looking to go, and I was always ex- influenced by what was happening on the outside. Once you realise it's what's happening on the inside, um, and the power to create your own reality, um, your own mental movie, your own movie of your life. Um, the other book that was really that that I read then about ten years ago when I after thinking Gorich, fifteen years, whatever it was, was the cybernetics, psycho-cybernetics by Matthew Maltz. Because I did have a, a relatively, I had a bad experience doing a public speaking event many years ago, and it affected the self-image to the point where being a mortgage advisor was easier than a salesperson because in my head, I'm only dealing with you, you know, I can do this face-to-face sales interaction. I can't speak on a big stage because I had a major, a complete meltdown, um, fluffed my lines, got agitated, anxious, and then what happens then, the mind tells you, you're not, you just can't speak on stage, or you can't speak to, there's 500 people in a room. Um, it's, uh, so, and I wasn't expecting five, it was a role play as part of a uh, course I was doing, and we had the final day, you had to do these role play live on stage business. It was a sales interaction, it was part of a business course. So we'd been prepped for it, and we'd been working up to it for two days as part of the boot camp. And we were told we would be doing it in the hotel, um, at the, the group. But unbeknown to us that morning then, they were bringing people from all the other colleges and business schools in Northern Ireland down. So I just knew the hotel seemed a lot busier. There's a lot of people here today. And then it happened to be in the room. They brought these students down to watch these business and management students do uh, role plays. So I balls mine up completely. And the it, it was a bad experience. And to me, it was like, I'm, not, I'm just not good at speaking publicly. And there, there was a mental block. It was a, no matter what thinking go rich does, you know, it helped, obviously, set goals, and then I became very clear on where I wanted to go. I knew then everything's, you know, driven by my mind, my thoughts, my images, my behaviors, 
However, it was Maxwell Maltz um, power of cybernetics, psycho-cybernetics that changed the self-image psychology. And then that became a driver. So, yep, think I'll go rich over here. But, wow, if I read and practice what Maltz is telling me, I can change my self-image. Um, I, I'm not, so that gave me a different dimension. Also, the teachings from that book have, have been critical. Um, they're, they're the cornerstone because if you don't have a good self-image of yourself, if you don't see yourself as a high-performing podcaster, sales rep, coach, uh, boxer, whatever it might be, then, you know, nothing else is going to happen because you can't outperform or outfull the self-image. You might come across or act as if, but deep down, if you're not, you haven't got that self-image crack, then it's all going to fall down. The house of cards is all going to fall apart. And I was very aware of that. I suppose by using the tips, strategies in, in the Maxwell Maltz books, Cybernetics, I was able to change my self-image through obviously the, the, the mental movies, the affirmations, the visualizations, etc. being consistent with that training. So you know, I ended up speaking in front of a couple of thousand people at Apple's biggest sales event in the world. So going from having a meltdown to flying to Cupertino to give a presentation on how to sell um, Monty Air software powered on an Apple TV to 2,000 of our top salespeople from around the world. So that book had a massive, profound impact on training and reprogramming the self-image, which is, I mean, success or whatever mindset, it's like a combination of a lot. You know, think and rich ain't going to do it itself. It's, and you, you know, there's all, there's some other concepts, you know, NLP, there's meditation, being able to rest the brain down. There's the Think and Go Rich philosophy. There's the self-image philosophy. Um, there's the success principles from Jack Canfield as well, you know, adding all those stuff. So you've kind of, Think and Go Rich is just one concept or one sort of, there's obviously like 13 principles in it, but you've got to use that alongside some of the other teachings and the meditations. And then there's new, there's new combinations coming out, there are new codes to the lock and NLP and other things like that, hypnosis are all adding to it. So you've kind of got to get all these things lined up, ducks in a row, for the lock to open. And when I say the lock to be open, I mean the success that you're looking for, the, the career, the finance, the relationships. Um, the On Jack Camping, I really resonated with his teachings more than the Bob Proctor's. Um, Napoleon Hill, as we know, is, is no longer with us, so it's not like you can sign up to Napoleon Hill podcasts or Napoleon Hill's online course and engage with them, uh, unfortunately. Um, uh, Aaron Nightingale and all those guys. So they said, the, the next generations, your Bob Pockters and your Jack Canfords. I went down the Jack Canford route, read the success principles, and it just made much more sense for me. Um, it was also a concept that I thought I could teach the people better than the some of the Bob Proctors, which is quite quite deep if you're not you know, bear in mind, when I was looking to teach these principles, it was to salespeople. And you know what, some salespeople sometimes are very, what's this mindset shit? I don't need that crap off your head. You know, there is that attitude. It's changing. So I studied the Jack, I became a certified success principles coach through the Jack Campbell program, spent a few thousand pounds, got my accreditation, and I'm the kind of using, so that was an art training that, that really helped me. Um, the reason I went down the Jack Campbell route as well is I wanted to teach this to other people. Some of the other programs were more individually focused. You know, this is going to help you, help you. But the Jack Campbell is going to help me, but then I can teach it. It is a certified trainer program. 
So the others were more, this is all about you. And then once you get set in yourself, and then there's other programs that you can do, and then you can teach this sort of stuff that this is about. But to me, I was already fixed. I wasn't broken. I, I kind of had a good understanding of how the mind worked. Um, and my passion was, how can I coach this to other people? And so, yeah, I went down the, the Jack Camp. It took me about a year to go through the online training and a couple of webinars, and I was supposed to go to an event. I couldn't make it through travel. Um, I was in Dubai with work, so and it was in Washington. So anyway, long story short, a year, Jack Canfield, Certified Success Principles Trainer, and now that's driving what's what I'm looking to do going forward and teaching sales teams these principles, teaching small business owners, teaching boxers these principles as well. Talk to us about boxing. When, when did that come into play for you and, and sort of where, where have you gone with it? Um, I got into it, I got into, I did it for a, while, a bit when I was very young, um, and my uncle was a boxer, or cousin, and he was an Irish champion, and he then um, told my father to bring the boys out, and got into it for a while, but my, golf was my passion when I was younger, I loved the golf course, I was pretty good at it too, very low handicap, um, six, five and six at one stage, and then, so golf was the thing, I was on the doorstep, boxing, um, and my father had to finish work and come and take it, so it wasn't always accessible uh, or consistent because of his work and self-employed. He wasn't always able to do it. So the boxing fitted out as I was younger. And then I got back and did in mid-20s. It was actually kickboxing. Um, I got into it through a friend. Started went out to Paddy Tones training. I loved the, the kickboxing, loved the, the, the smells and noises. There was a room full of 25 guys in a little shack that were just beating alongside each other. And I just loved that, you know, falling out of love with the wits. The gym, I've been in the gym since I was 15, lifting weights. I fallen out of love, so I got into kickboxing through a friend who was a very, very good kickboxer. Um, and took a couple of fights, you know, a number of fights in kickboxing. And, um, and then I was asked by a guy who said, could you, um, Oakleaf Boxing Club in there, I said, listen, we're running an event. Would you take a fight? And I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll take a fight. It was 25, 26. Um, he said, could you come down for a sparring session? And I thought, yeah, 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 I'll come down and I'm you know, training out in the kickboxing club. I know everything I need to know about boxing. I know everything I need to know about fighting. I've been in loads of them. Uh, I just love it. I love the fighting. I love the sparring. I love the... So, yeah. They said, no, you really need to come down to the boxing club and get a spar with a boxer. Came down. Um, he told this little guy. I was in my 20s, quite muscular, quite well built, very lean. Uh, and I'd been sparring every night in the kickboxing club and he told this little guy who was about 16 a lot lighter glove up get your shirt on get your head guard mouth christy you're going to go on with alan or whatever his name was and i'm like are you serious too much fact are you are you and bridge is his nickname his nickname and personal friend for since playing football so i knew him i was like bridge are you serious this guy's what age is he and he's like oh you're all right just uh, i'll be all. he said he'll be all right they'll just take me around and i'm like See, he's now been condescending to you. I mean, he's going to take me around. I'm going to kick him out. So long story short, we get under the ring. I thought I'll just, I'll just take it nice and light. I'll jab around and move and use my experience and all that sort of stuff. Threw a jab, mustn't get hit by two. Threw a one-two, mustn't get hit by four. About a minute and a half and I'm like, oh my God, I am out of my, this is different gravy. You know, in kickboxing, people just came forward and just, it was just a slugfest and kicks and punches and elbows and stuff. In boxing, it was bends and moves and slips and ducks and all that sort of. So after getting punched around the ring without laying a single glove, I came out and I looked at Eugene, the coach, Booch, and said, 
I need to learn that. I need to learn that. What age is he? Um, and in kickboxing, if you had 10 or 15 fights, you were very experienced. You know, guys in our gym had 15 fights and were European champions. Um, Arma Kiarn, phenomenal, but 15 fights is what he had. He was a European champion. So I looked at the little boxer guy and said, oh, hey, thanks for that. Appreciate it. Have you had any fights? He goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. How many fights have you had? He goes, 50. So boxing's different. They have them fighting all the time. They have them competing. There's, it's a national sport. Now, and it's our most successful Olympic sport. So there's little events every week happening. So the experience they get, the, and I, I, I never went back to the kickboxing club. I studied, loved and breathed boxing, took a load of fights in boxing, got involved and, you know, became a fundamental member of the club. But I will say this, it's, uh, and, you know, I, I then, because I was one of the older guys in the club and there's a lot of younger, I was also helping out taking young guys on pads and doing the drills and calling and taking a class, essentially, and all the coaches weren't there. And then I went through all the different coaching badges that they put you through, so, you know, it's probably a credit. But what I did realize was I was a way better coach than I was boxer, even though I'd, I'd never lost any of the fights. But I just knew I prepared the coaching and I was moving out. I was just, I'm a better coach. I prefer working with the people. I like talking them through the drills. I'm quite technical. I like breaking it down. I like building people's confidence, even if they're not great. I like just building their confidence while I have them on the pads. And I can see you know, young kids just to come in and queue up behind me and say, Winnie, can you take me on the pads? So I knew it was pretty decent at it and I had a flair for the coaching. When you say fire in your belly as well, one thing that stands out about boxing, you know, we were quite successful. We had nine Irish champions, we had four Irish champions on one day. No club in Ireland, I don't, you know. So we're down in the Dublin, and four, we're driving up the road with four Irish champions, cousin. Um, we have Brett now, who's living with Ricky Hatton in Manchester. He just, he's going to be huge. He's going to be a world champion. You know, we worked with him as a club. I coached him a lot, but Eugene coached him, so it's a club effort. effort. Um, you know, Brett's probably going to have his first pro fight when this is over, the COVID. Just Ricky Hatton's on Sky Sports talking about him last week. We coached him since he's 11 years of age. Multiple, nine times Irish champion, junior Commonwealth silver medalist. Sean McGlinchey, who I coached and who I'm, who's going to be, I'm working very closely with Sean now on success principles. Going to the Commonwealth Games with Sean, you know, working, running on the roads at six in the morning, doing pad work at 10 o'clock at night. Getting them from 102 kilos to 81 kilos. In a, in a very record, you know, three months through the help of nutritionists, but staying on his ass, training, working with him, being the coach. There's the mental aspect when you're losing that much weight, the mind starts wandering, helping him visualize, focus, plan, goals, affirmations, using the trainings that I knew. That's the stuff made me, at 4 a.m. when my alarm clock went off in a winter's morning, I bounced out of bed because I'm going running the boxers. That's how you know you're fire in your belly and you're, 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 you know, you're passionate about something. Um, I remember being really, really stressed We work one day at home, um, working from home sales. Then things weren't going my way at five o'clock in the evening. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get a bottle of wine and I'm going to put the feet up and just stuff America, stuff the sales. And um, the phone, a text message from Eugene in boxing club saying, can you take the club tonight? I uh, really need you, buddy. And I thought, yeah. Uh, no, I thought, of all the things, I'm freaking disgusted. I've had a busy day, little respect. I'm, time is not my own. My life is not my own. Now I have to go over to this effing boxing club. I was in the boxing club, got them in, slammed the doors. I came in, pissed off, drove over there like a maniac, got into the club and kind of felt a wee bit settling down the minute I entered the environment. Within about 10 minutes, I was in, after getting them warmed up, I was in the ring, picking a guy in pads. 
And that's when I knew, that's when I started the stress of strains and worries and general pissed offness just left it. And that's when I was going, this is what I should have been doing earlier on today. I could have came over here. That's when I knew, you know, what was a massive chore turned into a massive pleasure. And I was like, right, I meant to be doing this. And that left it. So that was a sort of shifting point that this, no matter how bad I'm feeling or how stressful it is, get yourself over to doing something you love, like the boxing coaching, get stuck on it. And that's, you know, I, I just love it. I just love it. It's great to see that, the fact that, you know, it's, as you say, it's almost a, it's an energy release for you. So you're yeah. getting this pent up stress and strain from business, but then this is actually a, an outlet for you, right? Yeah, yeah. It's an outlet, but it's passionate too. And I love nothing more than watching, you know, even when we're doing sparring sessions, just sitting, I get butterflies. I still get butterflies and I'm not sparring. Just getting the boys ready and getting everybody into the corner. And, you know, it's just a buzz. It's, a, it's maybe not a butterfly. It's, it's good. It's just an energy that, it takes you to a far better place for me, anyway. Um, I've learned a lot in boxing, from boxing, from, you know, Sean was at the Commonwealth Games. I was at the High Performance Institute with him for, for months before in preparation for the Games. These guys start training six months out for the Games, but like Olympics. When you have four Irish champions, your guys were going to Dublin every week to the Irish High Performance Institute, the Olympic coaches, and you're watching them teach the young boys. Um, and, and I learned a lot from boxing, language, boxing, tops, techniques, moves and, and, and mindset that has paid off in business sales and likewise you say i mean when you're when you're boxing do you i take it your senses are heightened are they is that you know yeah i mean when you're fighting when your first couple of fights you can be overrun by emotions all the pan and training visualization hard work good sparring once you get mike tyson said it once you get up you know everybody's got a plan you get a punch in the face what happens then that plan turns on they just a swing a match and then you're <gasps> you can't breathe the more you do it like anything you become more conscious of everything your training kicks on the hard work so boxing then becomes very you know you can see every shot you can feel every shot you've got your two shots ahead in your head right i'm going to do this but i'm going to hit them at that and then move and then your footwork when you start boxing um it's fight or flight mode and then it's just training people to get over that it's having them come back be consistent and then, you know, then boxing becomes something that's very, very strategic. And it's not two guys. As a coach, when you, you bring someone in, maybe an on-trained eye, and they just think it's two guys slugging each other. But when you're coaching it, and you've been there, and you've been in the fights, and you've been in the spars, and you know what goes on at every training camp with every fighter, you know this, isn't, this is super tactical, super skillful, and super focused work. So where, I mean, where you are today, I mean, you're almost, your two passions are, are coming together, really. It's, you know, and, and sales fighters, we can see there is, mm-hmm. is something there. You know, you're vast experience and it's, it's a lot of experience in sales. I mean, that's 20 plus years in, in mm-hmm. sales. And, you know, and then actually the boxing where it's actually the, the decompression side for you, but also heightened senses. So those words are coming together for you right now, right? Um, I'll probably, I would say the event that you hosted um, was helped piece out the guy. I remember doing the, the 14 month TEDx, which was spitballing. As they say, you know, there was no script, there was no preparation. Can you speak for 14 months about your goals? It was you and the other valued members of the mastermind on that particular day said, do you realize that your energy level shifted considerably when you, we know you're in sales and we know you know what you want to do in sales. But every time you talk about boxing, do you realize it? And then the sales fighter, your man was born, this dude here was born that, that kind of day, or that concept was born that day. 
So, um, yeah, it has come together. Both have come together. Um, and that's what's given the fire in the belly. Now I realize, oh, my two passions can come together. Mm-hmm. Because every salesperson has to be a fighter in a way. And it, it just makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. You know, it just makes perfect sense. The sales fighter, I fought for every sale. I fought for every promotion. We're fighting with ourselves. We're fighting with our colleagues. Things to up. Um, fighting the one business, you know, you, you're sparring every day with, with business people or, or prospects who don't want your product um, or don't know that they need it. So you're in a fight scenario. We, my coaching on sales and my approach to sales was the same as fighting or boxing. Um, and don't like using the word fighting, but um, boxing is you got to plan, you got to put the hard work on, you got to do the, the, you know, train hard and you will fight easy if you preparation plan and understand your customer and have your objections, your, your value propositions, your, your, your slide decks, your pitch, your script, and your, your visualization done. When you go into the, the boardroom, it should be a very easy place to be. And it's the same in the boxing ring. If you put the work on, the road work, the sprints, the spars, do what your coach tells you, um, the, the, a, a fight, a ring, although a tough place, should not, is not as tough as it could be when you go on with no plan, no prep, and no training. It's quite, it's quite interesting there. You're saying you, you prefer boxing to use the term boxing, not fighting. Can, can you explain that to us? <laughs> I think every, I think, don't get me wrong, I got into many a fight and scrap. It just to be called by when I was younger, well, it was a football, a playground, the street, part of being a boy, I guess, in, in Ireland. Um, I think when I got into um, boxing, and even when it was boxing or kickboxing, it was still fighting, you know, fighting tomorrow night and come down to watch us, we're fighting. I think when I moved into the coaching role, I don't, or maybe it's just getting older, um, and I understood and studied boxing. I used to spend hours on YouTube and hundreds of lots, tens of books on boxing. And then when you realize what boxing is, and it's not, it's hit and don't get hit. It's a science, it's an art, it's a skill. It, you kind of go, this isn't fighting. You know, and when you're trying to talk to some people, my sister to get there, or my getting kids that, you know, when I'm recommending boxing now to people, get them under boxing. It's not, I don't get them under fighting, get them under boxing. It'll teach them so much self-discipline. It'll work with fitness, his mindset, his confidence, and he's learning a really good, it's not about fighting anymore. It's about learning a skill, an art, a movement. You're, you know, the first thing I teach people in boxing isn't they throw a punch or isn't they throw a jab or stuff. It's your feet. Working the thing that we call the box, using the box, Get come the first, it's hit and don't get into position, get your shots off, get out. So that isn't fighting, that's boxing. And ironically, I mean, that's very similar to sales, right? You know, it's to get in there, it's to be effective and, and you know, almost watch your footwork. Yeah, exactly. Um, get in, don't get marked up, um, get your job done, uh, shake hands and get out, mm. get the day done and move on to the next. Because it's actually, I mean, in, in boxing, and there's a lot of respect, really, isn't there? You know, there's oh, yeah. a lot of respect and a lot of, you know, because as you say, if someone mis- mistakes the, the, you know, the, the, the term fight, which, you know, is not there, but boxing is really quite, it's quite respectful, it's quite honourable sport. It is. I mean, I seen when I when I moved from kickboxing world where you were changing in a changing room uh, across the hall from your, you know, the Clannery Hotel, Letterkenny was used over the venue, 900,000 people in the room. Away teams over here, home teams over here, then you know, so you don't see the fighter. You might see him at the way and you might not, but you're literally see him across the ring. You don't know who that yeah, and you know, it, it was it was different. It was I mean when I and, and but when I got into boxing, 
Um, and bear in mind, there was a younger starting to the guys from the 13, 14, 15 year old box. We're all, cha- cha- and all in the same changing room. Their clubs knew each other from years. You know, the, coach, the two coaches were the two would have been standing having a cup of tea and a bit of banter. Yet they, they might have two. So it was different for me seeing it from that side. But the respect um, in boxing and kickboxing, I must admit, is, is huge. Yep, you've got to be a warrior. You've got to get in there. Um, you have respect pre-fight. You've got um, respect in the ring. But when, no, sorry, when the bell goes, you're there to do a job. You're there. You, everybody just want, let's just say everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to look good. And everybody wants to show that they, you know, their training has paid off. I mean, when I had my first kickboxing fight, it was an absolute war. And there was no love. I got warned by the referee for trying to throw an elbow. And it was just in the heat of battle. And the other guy, too, a couple of low blows and a couple of cheap shots. And it was war. No love. And he was from Lurgan Kickboxing Club, Lurgan Bulldogs. So um, it was a war. Hi. The biggest, warmest embrace when the bell went. The two is... 15 months later, we're sitting having a beer um, and, and just enjoying, you know. So, you know, there, there's that element to it. There's there, there definitely no bad love, and it is all hugely about respect. It almost sounds slightly like your, your first trip out, you know, on, on selling insurance, you know, sort of that initial sort of turn down and then sort of keeping going until you, you sort of got your, your first mm-hmm. and then second sale. Mm-hmm. Persistence, yeah. Persistent space, yeah. So uh, I love the way you've actually, so the book, you, you've, you've put a bit of a structure to the book as well. And, and can you talk us through that? Yeah. Um, again, you know, the power of a mastermind, I guess. You know, you might have an idea, but when you share it, one mind, being open up to four or five hours, you can get some, the, the, the team together, you know, give me some, some thought, bring in this fighting or the boxing element, sales fighters, as opposed to sales boxer, obviously works much better. Um, in that respect, but yeah, you know, the idea around the book was taking the concepts of boxing, 12 rounds, you know, the, the various stages, novice, you then become an elite novice, a novice, everybody starts as an amateur, a novice amateur, then you, the, the highest point you can be is an elite amateur, then after you're elite, you become a professional, and every professional wants to be a world champion. So, and as we know, in the championships in boxing, there's 12 rounds. If to be a world champion, you've got to go 12 rounds um, to be crowned world champion. The championship rounds, 10, 11, 12. So the idea was to build the book around that. You know, let's, instead of having 10 chapters initially, the mastermind team said, what do we call them rounds? Right, that's a great idea. That's exactly what it is. And then what do we um, do 12 as opposed to 10? Right, okay. Um, I think you might have been the one that said that and caused me to, have they find two more chapters they, 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 they write about, which is which has worked well. Um, so, and then each round kind of building each other. So it's 12 rounds, the mindset success for salespeople, and there's going to be an element of branding. Um, it's what's worked for me in, in, in boxing and in sales. So, you know, starting with a, the number one, from every round chapter principle builds off the hour. Um, you can't be successful in boxing without the jab. So, you know, the basic fundamentals in round one. Round two, then moving up and how to plant it. So each round, in my mind, there might be a change of flow, but each round builds off the R. In my head as well, it's, it's like a sort of Netflix um, effect. You know, when you watch a great documentary, you read one round, you watch one episode and go, I fucking need to watch the next one. Mm-hmm. I need to watch the next one. Each one builds because... That's the way it's been designed, and then you come to the end, the 12 rounds, and then there's a bonus round. So just like boxing, everyone builds off it. It's teaching you from the fundamentals 
to the stuff that the high performers do, the world champions do. And if you make it through the 12 rounds and you love and breathe these principles and strategies, which has a mix of, there's theory in there. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. There's the theory that has to be said and, and taught and understood. There's real world stories. Um, those could, stories could be coming from the world, other people. A lot of them are coming from mine. Some are, so it's, uh, and there's exercises that you've got to do. So there's a blend of everything in each, each chapter, each round, from theory, understanding. It's written as well, not by an academic grammar specific, you know, author. It's more from the heart of a sort of a sales guy that's been in the trenches, um, who's wore the t-shirt, I guess, and is speaking in, in, in sales and small business owners and, and, and anybody's language. What I might do, you know, I've already got ideas for other sort of books that might be reworded. Verbiage and tone will be different, but these are for the, the sort of sales fighter type kind of guy, small business fighter, because that's... And it's currently with an editor who's not making that much edits to it because he likes the tone and style after giving her the brief. So, you know, all being well, the, the, the avatar, that sales guy that's looking to do better, or the sales guy that's doing great that wants to do even better, or be, be the vice president or the, get on his own business, hopefully when they read it, the tone resonates from the start and they'll just keep going through the chapters. And then the online learnings and the half-day workshops you know the workshops could involve some sparring who knows mm-hmm. <laughs> things on the table no, that's great well i mean that's i mean showing that energy and very much you know as you say you're, you're almost your natural ability one for sales and two for coaching mm-hmm. you know so it's, it's a natural marriage come together that you know you can help people to you know again they gotta they gotta get out there and they gotta throw the punches themselves yeah. so you can't do it for them yeah. but when they come back in for the reset they come back in for you know the, the sort of come back in from that round that you're there to help them and support them. Yeah, you go, you, you touch on something on the part of the book as well. I've touched, I've, I've engaged 12 salespeople that I've known over the years. They're all vice presidents or consultants or Mike Weinberg's one of the most respected authors, sales authors, and a number of were Amazon and New York Times bestsellers. Um, uh, I've reached out to a few people and said, listen, here's what I'm doing. Um, I want to do a bit in between each round. It's called the coach's corner, you know, the coach's tip, you know, and it's explaining that particular uh, concept, whether it be goal setting or taking action or persistence. Um, how do you use persistence, Mike? Can you give me a quick quote for a book? And 12 people have. So, yep, there's the round, the theory, the story, and then the action, take an action or exercise. And then there's a tip from a respected sales leader as well, the coach's corner. So, and it's, I said, when you're writing this, bear in mind, if you had to speak it, you've got a minute because that's all you get in the corner. You don't get three, five, you get one minute. In fact, it's less the time the guy sits down and the time you get him off a chair. It's actually more like 50 seconds. So if you're writing it, don't give me a book, just give me a paragraph. And if you have to say it, do it in 30, 40 or 50 seconds. And that's what I've got. I love that. So there's no, you know, you're not sort of given, as you say, it's written very, you know, in such a way that's easily digested. Yeah, but it's also it's compacted, so it's not, you know, pages and pages of verse. You know, it's something yeah. you can quickly pick up. You can read it and you can understand it and implement yeah, it, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's. I mean, like, you've like how many courses and how much have you spent? And and you know, this is years coming into one book. I mean, would you have any idea how much you spent? Tens, years? tens, tens of thousands. I guess from books, courses, seminars, one day events, two day events marketing some i've got value from some i haven't some i should have done more on some i did too much on um hey this this process that we're on this journey is lifelong learning 
it's 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 it, I'll spend on our tens of thousands is, is what I'm trying to say. So yep, I spent thousands. I'm in the market to spend more. Um, mm-hmm. Always looking to learn. Always looking to grow. Working with mentors. Working with you know, there's so many online courses. I I kind of focused on three or four teachers. So I don't want twenty different. I know I'm part of the Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street Wolf Pack. I like Mike Weinberg stuff as video coaching course. Joe Conrath, you know, the three top go-to people in sales because they cover the three, you know, BDB, BDC, and a sort of straight line method. You know, Bob Proctor, John Ashraf, and Jack Camper. You know, I, I do vary out the on the personal development side, um, and then looking at different marketing. You know, Ryan Deese and all these guys. So, sales, marketing, and mindset are the three sort of areas that I'm focused on and growing. And obviously, boxing. Um, you know, boxing coaching, boxing coaching courses. So. Spend tens of thousands, I'll probably spend an hour, a few tens of thousands between I'm finished. And what I say to salespeople is pilots, doctors, firemen, army, soldiers, they are constantly training. They're constantly investing in themselves or somebody's investing in something for them. We are no different, unfortunately, in sales. When I've led companies, sales teams, I always put them for money. Let's, let's get this training, let's get that. But if that's not available to you, then the guy that goes to the top is the guy that funds his own, you know, takes a portion of his income and instead of blowing it on whatever he's put 500 pound on their course or a book or uh, something so that's it's so important lifelong learning i mean no no different really to a boxer it's 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 time in the ring it's you know the number of practices is going the extra mile it's the early start right absolutely we say that to every boxer not some of my boxers as well our boxers um this is what you got to do if i'm you know unfortunately i won't be in the ring with you yeah, what I always say, your biggest, you know, one thing that got me out of bed when I was training was, you know, don't get me wrong, an alarm goes at four when you're fighting and and it's warm in bed and it's, you know, sometimes as you dip the toe out, you can feel the cold in the air in the room. You're like, oh, for fuck's sake, I've got to drive the Donegal to do this whole sprint at four in the morning. And um, the coach used to do it at four o'clock on a Sunday morning because that meant that people didn't go out drinking on a Saturday night. So you know, when you go and do hill sprints at Donegal, you couldn't see that where we were. It was a, just a vertical hull. But um, what, a, what, what the driver for me was, what's my opponent doing? He's probably doing his hull sprint. So if you know you do all the work, and when you're standing looking across a ring at a guy, and I tell this to the boxers, if you've done the hull sprints, if you've mm-hmm. done the sparring, if you've done the pad work, if you've come to every training, if you've listened to your coach, and you've done the mindset stuff, there's nothing left out. You've done everything. There's no point in you looking across the ring and going, I wish I had went and done those three miles in the Sunday mornings, or I wish I had got a couple of rounds extra sparring. Because once you get enters your head in the ring, or that enters your head in the boardroom, you know, if I had, you hadn't planned properly, you're beat. Mm. That's the first punch landed without landing, without the guy throwing a punch. You're on the road to defeat. So don't leave it the chance. Don't leave it to the boardroom. Don't leave it to you're standing across from your opponent. Get it done beforehand. Train hard, fight easy. Like that, like that. Just out of interest, I mean, what what lessons would you give to you know, or, or advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> um, and would I, you would you have listened? I would. <laughs> I, I mean, it's kind of worked out for the best. Everything seems to work out if you 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 know. I would do. I've done a lot of things differently. I would have probably listened to my father a lot more. Um, because he was trying to be a guiding influence when I was going wayward. And he, so that, listen to you and the respected elders a little bit more. Um, I probably, would, I can't say I would have studied harder at school because I, I, 
my plan, it's all worked out, I guess, you know, it's when I left school and realized, shit, I should have studied harder, but now, you know, it's too late now, let's just do this and get into that and stay positive. So, yeah, it's hard, that's a tough one, you know, it's kind of worked out. If I, if I wasn't doing what I was doing, writing books or working with sales teams or consulting, then maybe I'd, I'd, I'd have a lot more criticism about my younger days than I, than I have, but because it's kind of working out, I've happy, healthy family, et cetera, then, you know, but I would have listened probably to my father, might have been a, the number one thing. So, Moose, I mean, what, what sort of daily traits do you have that, that allow you to um, sort of keep up, keep up your routine and keep up your structure? Um, I, I, I try, I'm not the greatest sleeper, and I don't know if that'll ever be fixed without medication or, or, or alcohol, so um, you don't want to go down that route too often. But, Does that um, come from the, the night shift days, maybe? What I could that? do. That's exactly I, um I used to sleep well when I was on night shifts, when I came off them and slept. I used to sleep during the day very well but not sleep at night um so yeah and weirdly i was always very that's how i studied so hard in night shift because of my mind was freaking brilliant at night i could sit and read books and do courses went through all the cmap exams from record time um i didn't so yeah it could be something maybe i'm just born to be a night owl um but yeah getting up in the morning stick you know and a sunday night i map out the week ahead um i have a google document and i have a reminder on my phone that brian tracy goes up and sunday night boom plan the week so for me, just like fighting, just like boxing, just like sales, this is taking it to a bigger level, plan the week ahead, not plan for the meeting. But So uh, getting up a wee bit earlier just to make time for the mindset, a wee bit of visualization, entering in with your mastermind group, breathing techniques, which I've just got into. Those are the things that as I'm older that I'm getting comfort or relaxation and clarity from. Mm-hmm. Um, visualization, one thing I do pretty much most days is you have seven areas of my life goals. I kind of write them out. Every, uh, Brian Tracy introduced me to that, writing out your goals every day. So seven in seven different areas. Um, one thing, lastly as well, just the structure of the power hour. I try to do the power hour every day, and that's 20 minutes of breath work and meditation, 20 minutes of gym in the morning, and 20 minutes of reading. Um, and if I get that on, then everything else just seems to, some, seems to go, go, go well. Well, it's quite a, quite a, I mean, it sounds like it's a, it's a great setup for the day and to, to bring you in, but mm. I'm curious as well, obviously, I suppose, even like with a fight, you know, you, you are having to plan for, you know, one round is fine, but you, to go the whole way, you've really got to be structuring yourself and your mm-hmm. time and your energy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. The, the, this, this um, well, you know, I th- I, even when I was training for fighting or training, even training for sales, I found the hardest part was the sort of sometimes the mindset training. Mm-hmm. It was easier to go to the gym and smash the bag, get pads, get a few rounds sparring. In. It was easy to plan out and visualize or map out and do put together slide decks for presentations for boardrooms. One of the hardest things to do is sit down and actually calm down your mind and get it to settle and focus and visualize and you know I meditate. I could never do it for years. You know so. Some of the hardest parts is, um, uh, is is just getting that sort of mindset sort of stuff. It can be the most taxing. It seems that people would think it's the most easiest. Yeah, it's the easiest thing to do, but it's probably one of the hardest jobs a lot, sitting down and visualizing and calming the mind and being able to, and being consistent enough to make time for that as well. You know, you know there's times I thought, you know what, I'd rather just go and get my head punched in in the boxing club and sit down and do this 20 minutes of meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have done that as well. So, yeah. It's hard work, 
because you know when if you want to be successful i think or if you've got goals and aspirations it's not just turning up to work and showing up and working hard and being positive but you've got there's there's all the background you know nobody sees me or you or anybody sitting visualizing or meditating during the day but there's stuff that has to go on behind mm-hmm. the scenes it's like a committed boxer nobody sees him getting out of bed at four in the morning and pounding the roads on his own with his headset on you know in the dark so there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes that nobody sees that is is what pays you back well i said i mean it's, it's not just the the muscle alone is not enough it takes it takes the technique and the skill and being yeah. being being a smart boxer mm-hmm. you know being a smart fighter because otherwise as you say it's it all changes with a punch to the face it all oh, changes I, the plan goes out the window when you get a punch in the face and that was Mike Tyson <laughs> said that so out of interest, I mean, well, what is what is success for you? What what do you? A younger Christie would have said money, fame, and champagne and skittles. I guess you know <laughs> the the older now is just being happy and enjoying what you do. Um, being a coach, I guess now and being in sales or when I was leading sales teams and being in business is is giving value back to people. You know, if somebody stays with us in the bay, they have a great stay or a great experience. If somebody reads the book that they get something from it if somebody if i sell something to a hotel or a customer or whatever it might be a consultant i'm mentoring a guy now as well um that they get value so that that's important that's success somebody coming back getting that review on TripAdvisor now or getting that um reference for the website or getting that you know somebody saying christy thanks so much for selling us that system or whatever it is i want you to go and speak to joe over here he could you know that's now success i guess for me um, and on. once this is all over I've got big plans to get back to Oakley Boxing Club bear in mind I was consulting in Manchester for six months seven months before I was out of the boxing coaching scene and just in a boxing club sparring and I was supposed to take a fight in April as well um, you may have noticed on some of the matters of my black eyes a couple of times so I was getting really back into the trenches and loving it but um, when I get back now success is uh, I've got a goal of getting somebody from I would love to get a little gay kid about 11 years of age um, and map out is you know that's obviously got some natural raw talent, but to come to the Irish Ulster Irish right through the elite and you know turn pro and be something special. So that's for me a goal on the boxing side that I'm I'm going to be focusing on. It's almost the same with what you can do with you know people going into sales as well as starting up and bringing them through the ranks and and you know yeah. Yeah, true, exactly that too. So yeah, maybe making a difference. When I got into thinking Grouch, I wasn't a sales guy. I was probably a struggling to understand the concept. Got into the book, read it, studied it, and then it changed. So a lot of it was mindset. I had no specific sales training. It was just mindset training. So that's why that book, I've got lots of sales training now, tactical, strategic, and all sorts of courses I've been on. But the book's about mindset. So I think that's, if I can teach somebody that might be struggling in sales, that's had all the tactical sales training, but is falling down on the company leaderboard. He reads a book and reaches out to me and we can change his thoughts and visions and goals using sometimes the sales tactics and strategies change every day and buyers change and the value proposition change. One thing that not going to change is mind. It's there mm-hmm. forever and how you use it and what it can achieve. So if I can help one person go from the bottom of the scoreboard to the top, then I'll be happy. Brilliant. So for you, fire in the belly, how would you summarize it in one word or a couple of words? Um, just loving on purpose. Just loving on, pur- on purpose, doing what you were born to do. We used to say selling on purpose when you, were, you got good at sell, 
So you used to say, oh, you could do it with your eyes closed. You walk in the room and just boom, boom. You didn't need a script. You didn't even need to ask half a fact-finding question. It just came and you were helping somebody. You were emotionally and logically aligning their needs and, and getting them a sale. Fire in the belly is that, is, is living on purpose, jumping out of bed, high-fiving yourself in the morning and just getting on with it and loving every minute of what you're doing because it's passion, it's commitment, it's, it's, it's dedication, but it's also taking you to where, it's getting you from where you are to where you need to be and, and the fire in the belly will get you there. Christy, that's been phenomenal. And uh, listen, I, I thank you for your time here today. Look forward to the book coming out. And uh, yeah, I look forward to getting you back here as well to see where, where you're going. <laughs> well, that's that's the fire in the belly. Now, I've, I've said all this stuff, so I've got to um, put the put the, 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 the lighter under the belly, under the fire, or pour petrol on the fire, should I say, and um, really get it ignited. Great to see it. Great to see it. Chrissy, thank you so much for your time. You, really Pete. appreciate it today. We'll speak All to you right. again. Cheers. Thank you very much, sir. Pleasure. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that the people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.